welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bass. And thank you for listening, David. Yes. How you doing? I am just about getting ready here to put 2015 to bed. Yeah. Uh, we have one more week release. after this. Well, two more, really. Oh, that's right. Ne- yes, next yes. week is the Oscar show. Yes, that's right. Um, which I, I hope you have a good time. Yeah. I will not be on it. I got I to gotta actually work out who I'm going to host that with. I forgot. <laughs> um, and then the week after that, we will do our personal individual awards indeed um for the year and i should mention that by the time you're hearing this the bp ceremony has been posted so you can so go to battleship pretension and you can hear uh the various presenters uh talk about what what won and then i believe also be checking back to battleshippretension.com and uh looking at people's uh, personal top tens uh, which we post every few days. Um, yep. As of as of recording, uh, Sarah's is the most recent to be posted, but there have been uh, four uh, four or five others at this point. So so be checking back on that. We have all kinds of year end coverage, and so feel free to just click on a lot of things, whether you read or not. I don't care. Just be sure to click. That's what's important. Just yeah, click anything you see. Yeah, left, right, center. Yeah. All right. Um, click early, click often. But that's not what we're doing here. No, let's not waste any more time. Well, we're about to. We're about to waste a lot of time. <laughs> yeah, but right. we're going to be saying things um, with purpose. Uh, let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. We're going to talk about the year in 2015. We're going to count down our favorite films of 2015. Mm, but we're going to get some, yeah, some other stuff out of the way first, because we, like we, we, like uh, we like to start with a few amuse-bouches, if you will. Um <laughs> You're learning all kinds of words. For I know that word, but I don't remember what it is. It's, I know that those couple of words. It's like a. It's a. It's, I don't know what it means. It's like a little literally, right? But it's like a. It's a little. It's like a, almost like a pre appetizer, like something just. Okay. To yes. Your, yes. Wait, okay. Waste I've, your taste buds up a little bit. I've wait been to a handful of really nice restaurants where they say, "Oh, that's what this is," uh-huh. and it took me a minute to realize the context that you were using is like, Oh, okay. That's that. There's no question. That is what we're about to do is present you with a delightful amuse bouche. But it's, um, that's almost kind of a misnomer because we like to start, we like to start sour. Yeah. When we do these, you know, we we like to start with the most negative aspects of the year and work our way toward the most positive aspects. Start with the sour work towards the sweet. That's right. That's right. Um, so why don't we start? Get, let's get again. Let's get right into it, shall mm-hmm. we? Uh, what would you name Tyler Smith's worst film of 2015? As tends to happen, because I host a podcast called More Than One Lesson, <laughs> in which we talk about, among other things, uh, the more notable Christian films of the year. Um, uh, for probably the second or third year in a row. Um, my least favorite movie is a Christian film that people have probably heard of. It's called war room. It is uh, written and directed by Alex Kendrick and it is about this. Uh, who gives a shit? Who gives a shit what it's about? It's a standard Christian film that here's the thing in April, I'm going to be in Orlando at the international Christian film festival. I was there last year. This year I'm giving a 45 minute seminar called speaking the language of film. I'm very excited to be doing it among the other, uh, seminar presenters or whatever you want to say uh-huh. is Alex Kendrick. Oh, 
Am I going to have to murder this man? Okay. I don't know. You just need to be with kindness. Um, <laughs> I was just going to say, prepare for fisticuffs. You need to go through a montage of training. The thing absolutely. where you duck on either side of the rope, like yeah, Jake oh. Gyllenhaal and Southpaw. You got to, you got to get, uh, you got to get your training montage on absolutely. before this, so you can be prepared for the sweet science. <laughs> I do love that it's called that. Like neither of those words apply. <laughs> It's just, it's, it's like someone said that as a joke once and uh-huh. someone like really latched onto it. Um, yeah. And so uh, what's fascinating is that in some cases, Christian film has gotten a little bit better. There was a movie called Woodlawn that was actually pretty good. Um, this weekend, uh, a movie called Risen is being released and it looks like it has good, it has good production value. Um, it looks like it's written pretty well, uh, pretty good actors as well. You know, this is it's it's interesting to see the evolution of Christian film. However, there are still people out there that I would venture to say are though they are still very popular financially. I'd venture to say they are relics. They are relics of an of a of a different era. Admittedly, the era was maybe I don't know two years ago, but. <laughs> Can I keep up with the times? Yeah. So you've got your Kirk Cameron Kendrick. and you've got your, you got your Cameron and Kendrick, uh, who, you know, go on the road and do like a wonderful vaudeville act. Uh-huh. Um, actually if they did a vaudeville, act, vaudeville act, it would not be nearly as funny as the serious movies they produce. <laughs> um, and I don't like being negative. I really don't. I try to look for the positive where I can, but these movies, it is astounding just how little progress Alex Kendrick has made. Script is still bad on every level the theology is actually getting worse <laughs> it's where like nowhere in the sorry to get all christiany about it like nowhere in the bible does it say that if you're a christian everything's going to go great for you uh-huh. in fact it regularly says right. it won't there's that guy job yeah for instance well as, as, not as a for instance he's not necessarily a christian i would say okay but at the but very the least he's in the bible at the very least things don't go great for Christ right. uh, in there. And so I don't but that's, know. He's the one guy. He's the, yeah. I'm yeah. saying everything goes poorly for Christ on my behalf. Yes. Yeah, so we I get to, to, to revel in it. I get to live my best life now as Joel Osteen would say. Um, okay. yeah. And I, so I think there's a very specific brand of American Christianity where they find, they found a way to sort of idealize a certain type of comfort as a goal. Um, and, you know, this is a movie about a marriage that is not going well. And as, ha- as was the case with Fireproof, which is Alex, also Alex Kendrick in 2008 and kind of the movie that, that kicked off this new, uh, this new era of Christian film that has since, and it since has moved on from there. But um, in watching these movies about like these bad marriages, I've been married for 10 years and I look at the, at these marriages and I think, man, if my marriage ever got as bad as these, I would have the best marriage in the world (laughs) because it is so castrated. And so every edge has been sanded off. It's just, he does, he makes movies that are theoretically for adults. I mean, what kid wants to watch a movie about a marriage? Nobody. So this is a, this is adult when you say adult content, obviously everyone thinks in terms yeah. of, you know, but these are adult themes. They're for grownups, mm-hmm. but he approaches it in the most juvenile simplistic way. And it bothers the hell out of me. And 
when you have other Christian filmmakers attempting and sometimes succeeding to make progress, artistic progress. Um, the fact that he's still out there doing what he's doing and that Woodlawn, again, not a great movie, but a real movie, at least, uh, it makes, you know, a few million dollars. And meanwhile, war room makes $50 million, which is big for a Christian film, uh, is to me horrendous. It is my least favorite movie of the year. War room. David, well, what about you? Uh, we've got some great, um, transitions in there. Um, okay. In terms of, um, I'm going to eat a cookie while you're doing that. Okay. Uh, my, my least favorite is also a movie that is, um, perhaps a bit ideologically disingenuous because it's preaching to a choir. Um, but I, first I want to say what I mean when I say worst movie, because I'm not, there are, there are movies that are very poorly made and I don't like, I feel like it's, it's boring if I were just to point at a movie that I think is a poorly made movie and say it's the worst movie of the I year. I sometimes like, feel guilty for saying Christian films because it seems <laughs> it seems like hey, picking on like a special ed kid or something. But like, um, like there was that movie Hot Pursuit that came out this year, which oh, just yeah. feels like the product of like one of those twenty four hour film festivals. Like it just seems yeah. so slapdash. I didn't like Hot Pursuit, but. And yet I found a way to pick on it. I was going to say, I'm not going to pick on it. I, I just said something shitty yeah. about it. Um, but no, I want to pick on the movie that, um, that I think is the, the most offensive to me as a film lover. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the movie that is more of a crime of cinema. Ooh. Um, and the film that I am picking is my least favorite film of 2015 is truth. Yeah. Um, which is ironic that it's called that because it's not very interested in the truth um, or it's only interested in the part of the parts of the truth that bolstered the, uh, the, the, the facts that hold up what they, what the film wants you to believe. Uh, This is quite a bit of spin in this film. Yeah. This this is the telling of the story of um, the news story that um, led to the end of Dan Rather's career at, um, CBS, CBS, CBS news. Um, and it just starts basically what this is. The good version of this movie is a movie about people who found a good story and then became so attached to, in terms of confirmation bias of that good story mm-hmm. that they ended up blowing past the things that were solid and newsworthy about it and ruining the whole story yeah. um, by being uh, over eager um, and certainly a little biased, but I don't, I don't think we can, I mean, I don't think news men and women can be completely unbiased. So I don't want to hold them. I think you can be, you can have biases, but then also have this sort of, um, be discriminating enough to check your biases. Do you know what I mean? It's almost the minute you acknowledge that you have bias and what it might be in this story. You're already halfway towards uh, reporting it objectively. Right. But this movie before it's even, I think it assumes, you know, that you know the basic story because before it's even gotten into the story, it is already making apologies. Yeah. Uh, And I, I just find that it's not just that it's a good, uh, that it's a, wasted attempt to tell what could have been a very interesting story. It's not just that it's that it's so self-congratulatory and it so knows the audience that it wants and is in a way, I think very disrespectful of that audience to 
be so pandering that it's it's just it's the movie that left the worst taste in my mouth of any movie that I saw this year. And I know I joked on our movie journal. I said that you know, I basically what I what I want to say here is I think you Tyler with your political leanings mm-hmm. would be you would have a better time at the new Michael Moore movie <laughs> than if you sat down and watched Truth. <laughs> yeah, there's just something. I love journalism movies, mm-hmm. and I believe in the idea of journalism. I think we'll be talking about some journalism movies later today, or at least one. Oh, indeed. No question. Yeah. And just, you know, whether it be The Insider or All the President's Men or, or you know, Truth Could Have Been Shattered Glass. Right. And I haven't seen it, but I want to. I, I want to see Truth, regardless of how I might feel about it, because uh-huh. I, I, I feel like it almost feels like the movie based on what you, I read your article and, and you've been, and when you first saw it, you told me about it. And now you're just, what you're saying now, it's just like, it's almost like if they had approached the film itself in a journalistic way, uh-huh. instead of an editorial way where they're reporting a story rather than commenting on a story. I don't know. It's they, they set out with, I don't like to use the word cause every film has an agenda, but they definitely had an agenda. And I almost feel like if you're going to make a movie about journalism, you almost need to sort of adopt the spirit of the, <laughs> of the people you're reporting on. Um, I, I don't know if you need to, but that does tend to make for good movies when people do it, do it yeah. that way. The, yeah. be, the best journalism movies will take on that tone, I yeah. think. Um, but okay, so we can move on to Let's slightly on. less negative. Yeah, we're getting slightly less negative. This is the movie that you, Tyler, think is way overrated. <laughs> when next year, we're going to have some little drops. We're going to have some production. <laughs> When we, when we get to each, each topic, overrated. Yeah, it's going to be in stereo. Overrated. I will do my best. Um, so uh, yeah, I will grow tired of just editing the beepies, and I'll be like, "Here we go." Um, okay, overrated. Uh, I don't remember how you say this guy's last name. I feel terrible. Rick uh, Famuyiwa. Oh, okay. Uh, the film is dope. Yeah. I was torn for overrated. I was torn between Ant Man and dope <laughs> both movies that i liked by the way right so, yeah um yeah most people did uh-huh. i think however they are overrated um and so i very i obviously i think that i'm in, in the minority on this one there's a lot of good and they tend not to be when i talk about a movie being overrated it tends not to be a movie i don't like there's a lot to like in dope there's a lot okay. that i do like in dope it's more just this it feels very, this very hodgepodge, uh, a collection of, of short films that happen to involve the same characters. And that's fine. I'm okay with that. Yeah, I don't that. necessarily have a problem with that. Um, except that I can't quite figure out what the, the, the thing that can, that can tie them all together is, is the, the thing that is the, the character, the main character or his friends mm-hmm. and what he learns over the course of the film. And I feel like he's not learning much. Um, he's experiencing a lot, but I feel like he's not I, from a character arc standpoint. It's one of the reasons I don't get locked into the idea of a three act structure. There are plenty of movies mm-hmm. I love that don't have a three act structure, but when you have one character, uh, one lead character, and it's all about what, how he is experienced, he or she is experiencing the events of the film. Three act structure works very, very well. And if you're going to deviate from that, you need to know why. And I felt like this script didn't know why it just throws a lot of stuff together and just sees what happens. Uh, I think you gave me the key to unlock this and it's still, you're completely within your rights to not like it. I know, um, you know, our friend Scott doesn't like movies like this. I don't think you do. 
I think the thing about dope is that it's not the main character who's doing the learning. It's supposed to be the viewer. And I think that is not the kind of movie you tend to respond well to, um, with some exceptions. You like the big short, which is, uh, yeah. that, that kind of movie. And so that was and, in I, the running for this category for me. Okay. Even though it's, um, it's much higher on my list than, than this or, or, or Ant-Man. So yeah. So, so, so there you go. I think that's a type of movie that you don't respond well to. And mm-hmm. I do tend to respond well to, to movies that are sort of upfront about, I have I like, the I like funny games, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's true. Um, uh, yeah, so I mean, th- that's a uh, personal taste coming into it. But to me, that's the through line. That's what works for me is that this is a picture of um, what it means to be uh, in one way a normal kid that any kid from uh, any American kid from any part of the country mm-hmm. could relate to. And also to have spe- experiences in a life that is very specific to their neighborhood and their economic standing mm-hmm. um, and the way that those things work together to me that's that's when the movie is at its best is when it's when it's illustrating uh illustrating that and i feel but i i guess maybe the for me the devil's in the details like incorporating all this 80s stuff for reasons i can't quite put my finger 90s on stuff. 90s stuff pardon me like early 90s stuff right yeah um i guess i assumed it took place uh, when i when i went into the film i assumed it took place during that time, which I thought actually would have made it a a more interesting film. Um, but that these characters are so fascinated by this time. I'm not saying it's not believable. It's perfectly, you know, I'm, Oh, it's fair. My, uh, a lot of my friends in high school, we were like that except for the, you know, 10 years earlier, we went into, uh, you know, late seventies, early eighties, new wave and stuff like that. And that was a big, touchstone for us and so i did that that felt authentic to me i guess the thing is it's not even so much that it didn't feel authentic as it is and again there's something about this movie that brings out tendencies uh, things about me as a film viewer that i'm mostly not like i said (laughs) i don't cling to a three-act structure as the the gold standard Mm -hmm. um i don't cling to every aspect of, of a film has to be connected and working towards a goal um like the the fact of these these three characters being interested in this specific type of culture, um, uh, or this this time period in in a certain type of uh, pop culture, um, that doesn't necessarily play into the plot. Really, it's just a function of who they are. But even then, I feel like it as a function of who they are, it should inform. It should it should work to inform some of the decisions they make as opposed to just be an interesting aspect about them because, and I maybe this, maybe this is my issue. If it's, if the filmmaker incorporates it, incorporates it without having it play an active role in who the character is as far as the decisions they make and, and who they are as, you know, as far as their, not merely their personality, but their, their core, if that makes sense. Um, then it just seems like a thing that was that was added after the fact because the filmmaker or the writer thought, uh, these characters are not actually that interesting, so I will add this quirk that won't really play much of a part in the larger story mm-hmm. or in the characters themselves, uh, but maybe I can fool the audience into thinking they're more interesting than they are. Um, and that's... Maybe a little unfair of me because I do tend to like when a character just has one little quirk here and there, 
But I guess this isn't a quirk that's here and there. It's everything about these characters on a superficial level. And then, as you know, I hate that thing at the end. And I'm with you. Yeah. yeah. That, that, that speech at the end. It's is, so uh, shoehorned in. But again, there. there is a shaggy dog quality to the film that I actually do appreciate. I just think it steers too much into that. Okay. And I, more than anything, I say I come away from the film interested to see what the director does next more so than being, I see a lot of potential rather than saying this is a good thing in and of itself. All Moving right. on. Sorry. Yes. Am mine, I taking too long? Uh, no, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you if you are. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, not out loud. Well, I, I'll, do, I'll, I t- I'll give you the, the wrap up. When I talk, I'm going to just close my eyes so I can, so okay. I don't have to see that and I can just talk and talk. Um, <laughs> um, Mine is, uh, uh, I don't know if it, it entirely qualifies. Here's the thing. I think among the critics that I read, mm-hmm. this actually wasn't a very well thought of film. In fact, the Village Voice Critics Poll named it the worst film of 2015. Oh, wow. But if you look overall, a whole lot of people like this movie. Okay. It's Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. Ah. That's what I'm naming as the most overrated film of 2015, even though most of the people <laughs> that I tend to converse uh, about movies with didn't like it. Yes. Um, it's, it, it, it's a movie that seems it makes, uh, it makes, it seems to make every possible aesthetic or dialogue choice under the sun and try to cram them all in without any relation to one another. Just the motivation behind every move move is, uh, people are going to think this is cool. Real quick, isn't it odd that both of our overrated movies seem to have a certain degree of affectation? Uh-huh. Yeah, I don't think it's odd. I think it's probably something that you and I don't like. <laughs> yeah, we've been hosting this for nine years. <laughs> yeah. Like, We do probably rub off on each other. I'm sorry, yeah. go on. Yeah, uh, and you you haven't seen it, right? I have not yet seen yeah, it. Um, I, I, I don't know what else to say except that it feels so calculated this movie Mm. uh it feels i guess sort of like truth like it knows who its audience is and it's going to try to pander directly to that audience and that audience is the uh you know criterion collecting um you know film comment reading young person yeah um but it doesn't have any of the weight or motivation of the films that are celebrated by the Criterion Collection right. or, or or written about in film comment or what have you. Um, it's all, yeah, you use the word, it's it's all affectation from beginning to end. Uh, in, as, a, as a result, kind of like, again, like what you were saying about Dope, but it not feeling like it has a, uh, a, a through line, it makes, it makes me know the dying girl feel like it goes on forever. Hmm. because it never gets any momentum because it doesn't have any reason to hang together. There's no, there's no skeleton to the movie whatsoever. It's all adornment. Um, it's like all ornaments in search of a tree. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. Let me ask you this because when I saw the trailer and then based on what a lot of people have said, including yourself, I found myself wondering, this looks like it's a lot of, a lot of affectation, a lot of uh, hipness, and then 
realizing, oh shoot, we need a core to that. We need a heart. We need this to actually there. We need to at least acknowledge that there should be a tree for uh-huh. all these ornaments. Um, and that's where the dying girl, the dying girl comes in. I have to assume that that is the role she plays to <laughs> right, make yeah, all of yeah. this feel like it means something. Yeah, is that to true? The main character? Like okay. her? Yeah. I mean, and now this complaint that, um, this is in theory a movie about a dying girl, but it's told from the point of view of a character who manages to make it all about himself. Mm -hmm. Um, I've heard people say that that is intentional and I would be willing to listen to that argument if the movie were good enough for that argument to be worthwhile. (laughs) Maybe it was intentional, but I still don't care because it's not, um, the, the movie's just not compelling enough. Okay. All right, let's, uh, move on to some positivity. Yeah. I think everything from now on is positive. Everything from now on is positive. What would you say is the most underrated movie of the year? Well, of the films I've seen, obviously, David. <laughs> It'd be weird if I were to talk, you know, about films I haven't seen. Yeah, yeah you're, not, so, you're right. That would be um, weird. That would be very strange. Uh, this was tough for me. And it's weird because in the same way that when I say something is overrated, it doesn't mean I don't like it. And in the same way, when I say something is underrated, it doesn't mean that I love it or, I, or even that I really like it. This is a movie that I merely think is good. Mm-hmm. And I feel like people just didn't talk enough about, and they certainly, and people didn't see, and I think they should have, which is Guy Ritchie's The Man from Uncle. Oh, I didn't, I, I didn't see it. Yeah, and it's, it is not a perfect film, but there is a lot of good in there. It's, it, uh, it is a perfect, it is a fully realized world. I don't, I'm not familiar with the, the TV show or anything like that, but it is a film that takes place in the Cold War. And it actually inspired uh, me to suggest a topic that we haven't done yet, which is movies about the Cold War. Okay. Um, and it's fun and, and quirky, but also the production design is beautiful. The costumes are beautiful. Every, everything about it. In the same way that I think Bridge of Spies creates a world where I don't believe that anybody actually inhabits this world. Mm-hmm. It's more just... It's it's like they're trying to capture our memory of it. And when right. we think of... We don't necessarily think of the Cold War as being a glamorous thing, but it take it, it takes place during a time when you know men wore suits and that's and they drove these kinds of cars and and that and women wore these types of dresses, and it's very much the visually it's very much the essence of that time period, um, but it also and it's and it's very much you know it's a spy movie while all, uh, also being. I feel like uh, just as the James Bond movies <coughs> are heading down a path of very serious and at times I would venture to say self-serious, um, the man from Uncle comes along and says, "Now nah, let's let's uh, let's find the goofiness and let's find the fun and the and the thrills and all of that." Um, I would say it is it is sort of a good companion film to Kingsman to a certain extent but I think I prefer man from uncle of the two. It is, there are a couple of sequences in there that remind me just how good a director guy Ritchie can be. Mm-hmm. Um, the performances are, are marvelous. Henry Cavill shows that he is wasted on being Superman, um, <laughs> because he can be remarkably charming, uh, in a very heightened type of way. Army hammer does a marvelous job as well. Uh, and the fact that these two guys, cause the idea is one is an American agent. One is a Russian agent. Right. They have to work together and they have a great deal of chemistry while still being believable rivals. Uh, 
I don't know. So much of it works. It is just in the end. I think the the big strike against it is that it's all it's just light as a feather, and in yeah. the end, doesn't mean much. But as an entertainment, it's solid. It's really really good, and and I feel like a lot of I feel like way more people would enjoy it. Uh, I think, which is sorry, I think people would enjoy it if they simply saw it, but nobody did. So, listener, go and see it. You'll enjoy yourself. All right, uh, my uh, pick for most underrated movie of the year is also a spy movie of sorts, and one that you have seen, um, and that we talked about fairly recently on the movie, on a movie journal. It's called American Ultra, mm. uh, and yeah, I I really need to go. I I, I want to read more negative reviews and see if I can understand just what people didn't what people missed about it because it's kind of uh it it hits so many of the markers of what i'm what i'm looking for in this type of movie it's you know it's the the thing that i've said countless times on this podcast and that i have always given credit to our we had the same film professor um we had a lot of the same film professors, I guess, went to the same film school. But uh, I think we both were big fans of uh, uh, our guy, Ron Felzone. Absolutely. And he said multiple times, there's nothing that you can say in movies that you, you can't say in genre movies. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And to me, American Ultra is, it's everything you want from a from its sort of superficial description of a what, stoner spy, like R-rated violent stoner spy action movie. Mm-hmm. Um, that is really just a vehicle to tell a really heartfelt, um, and very sweet, uh, I guess love story is right, but it seems almost reductive to say that it's a love story. Um, relationship story. Cause I feel like when you think of love story, you think of a love that is, de- that starts and then develops. This right. is one that's already there. These people are already in love. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it, to me, this is a story about how much loving someone and being loved by that person in return can help, can get you through your trials and tribulations. And yeah. this is a, a really sweet illustration of, of that concept. And it's done with, you know, a huge body count and explosions yeah. and, and a batshit crazy, but perfect performance by Walton Goggins. <laughs> um, it's spot on. It's yeah. great. Um, it's, uh, I, I really don't understand what people missed about it. I feel like, how are you all so wrong? It's such, it's such a good movie. I think it lost a lot of people. By the way, I was looking at my letterbox because I had a feeling about something and I am correct. Uh, American Ultra is one slot up in my, uh, in my rankings, uh, from the, uh, the man from uncle. It is, <laughs> they're, they're right next to each other. Oddly enough. Um, yeah, you and I we got it. We got it. Um, I think a lot of people, including myself to a certain extent, I think a lot of people were lost by, um, once, once the violence just took over, I think a lot of the, for lack of a better term, cleverness or originality started giving way to simply here's some more, uh, some more violence. Um, within that there is some creativity, but not a whole lot. Um, but to me at its core, the, the, the fascinating thing about it as a relationship film is the idea. And you know, you've been with your wife for a while now. I've been with mine for a while now. And there is this thing. It's, it's such a cliche, but the concept of, I know you better than you know yourself Mm. where, because we are so close to our own flaws and foibles. Sometimes we either don't see them at all, or we forget they're there. 
and or we get so focused on them that we actually fail to see the the positive side of the coin and our loved one is close enough to us, but also they're not us. And so they are very aware of these things in a slightly more objective way. So they can anticipate a bad, uh, a negative thing we'll do. And they are already starting to forgive us and love us as we're starting right. to do it. Or they recognize as Jen has had to do for me many times where I get very upset about my neurosis and stuff like that. And I just cannot understand why anybody would want to be around that. And she said, she said, well, the, that is one side of the coin that on that same coin, if you look at the other side, you will find here's all the positive things that, that can go with this neurosis and insecurity Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And she's like, I see that too. You don't see that part because when you're in the midst of the negative thing, that's all you're saying. I see both. And that is why I'm able to, that is why I'm still committed to you. And I feel like that's very much what American Ultra is. And that's why the Kristen Stewart character is to me the most dynamic character in the film. Mm. I don't know. What do you think? Like I was very impressed by her performance and the writing of the character. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Yes. On both counts. Yeah. And I also like John Leguizamo. (laughs) Yeah, he's uh, I, I I really like him in uh, like this and and John Wick last year. Like I like I like John Leguizamo in small parts where he adds adds uh, some or is a colorful character. I think I like it most when he's dressed as like a demonic clown, like in Spawn. Oh, okay. Did you ever see Spawn? I thought you were talking about Toulouse Lautrec <laughs> in Moulin Rouge. Uh, no, I never saw Spawn. Um, sorry, Spawn. My my Midwest came out there. What'd you say? Spawn. Span. I pronounced it Span. Um, <laughs> let's, uh, we, we need to get into our honorable mentions and then the big uh, countdown begins. But first, let's pay a couple bills. All right. Everybody, listen up. This episode is that you're enjoying already so much is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. And right now, it is Oscar time at Mubi, so there are a number of Oscar nominees and winners, including The Aviator, Amelie, The Crying Game, and The Little Foxes. Uh, I have not seen Little Foxes. It's a William Wyler film that features, I believe, Betty Davis, and I've heard wonderful things about it. But I have seen The Crying Game. I've seen Amelie. I've seen The Aviator. There's a number of other films that are really great on there. Um, So those are available. And if you are... And here's the thing. You're listening to this, undoubtedly, as closely as you can. There's a special offer for you. You can try Mubi free for one month. Just go to Mubi.com. That's M-U-B-I.com slash Battleship to redeem now. And I want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com, which is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of styles and colors. They look great and they sound great. And we use them each and every day uh, in our daily lives. And uh, you can find all this at tweakedaudio.com for a low, low price. But if you put in the extra effort and use the offer code pretension at checkout, you'll get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. That's tweakedaudio.com offer code pretension. All right, let's get back into it. All right. Now, it's time for honorable mentions. Yep. So I think, if I remember correctly, we don't go back and forth here. You run down your five, I run down my five. In the interest of saving time. Okay. I don't think I remember that, but now that you mention it, 
I Let's think do that's it. right. If it's not, I still sure. think that's how we should do it. Sure, what the hell? Uh, because I think um, it will save time okay. as long as we try to be. I'll try to be, uh, yeah, try yeah. to sum things up. Okay, so the first one for me is Rodney Asher's The Nightmare. Okay, let's move on. Okay. Next for me is Paolo Sorrentino's Youth. Uh, okay, let's talk about youth. Okay. Um, yeah, this movie really I surprised me. I have to double check my list right now. Yeah, I'm surprised that we're not moving on from that. Because uh, I was under the impression that you really oh, yeah, loved yeah. it. Let's move on from you. Okay. Yeah. Next for me, What's we. thinking? Yeah, I, I was surprised. Yeah. Uh, next for me is a film that we will be sitting here talking about for a moment, which is David O. Russell's Joy, which surprised me. Uh, and maybe it shouldn't have. I like the way David O. Russell makes films. But for anybody who attempts to do something and it is clear just how alone you are, even when people that you love, they, they want to support you, but they just don't think you are able to do this thing. And, you know, you and I are both in Los Angeles having, you know, pursuing things that are difficult to achieve. And thankfully you and I both have, you know, supportive wives, we've had supportive parents. So I feel like we, we lucked out, but I know a number of people whose parents and family members had tried to talk them out of coming out here. And that sounds horrible to me, but yeah, there's something very special in that moment when the person actually does achieve this thing. And you come to realize there's a sadness in the fact that they had to do it completely on their own. Um, without the moral, the true moral support of the people they love, or in the case of joy, not merely the people they love, but also the system in which they are working because this is a, a lower class woman who has an idea and just cannot get people on board with it, even though it has been proven out to be a very, very good and bankable idea. And even when she does convince somebody of it, she still, she just has to keep convincing people and people are willing to give her like a minute of grace. And that is about it. Um, and so, to me, I, I think Jennifer Lawrence just does a great job of somebody who is strong-willed but may not know it immediately. She has to find it again um, after you know she's a mother, she's a you know she's a, a daughter who basically keeps her whole family together, and in the midst of all this, she's trying to achieve something and convince people that it, she is worth their time. And so there's. From a performance standpoint, I love her character. From a writing standpoint, I a lot of people thought that it's that it's tonally all over the place. I think by focusing in on her character, that provides the anchor and everything else can be chaotic and different types of chaos. Sometimes it's comedic chaos, sometimes it's genuinely stressful and um, melodramatic chaos. But I think by focusing on the character of Joy it all, it all hangs together for me. And it also does, as you know, David, and as you acknowledge, it does feature one of the best film, uh, one of the best sequences in all of 2015. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm uh, not going to rain on your parade. Yeah. please. Don't. <laughs> uh, next, for, well, next for me is a movie that you also might rain on my parade about, which is Quentin Tarantino's the hateful eight. Yeah. I, I might be a little bit more willing. I, I, cause I, I have a lot of respect for joy. I just don't okay. think it, um, uh, holds together and I don't think it, um, I mean, you talked about the 
three act structure was was dope i don't think joy understands where its climax is <laughs> that's 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 somewhat true um, um but with with hateful but i still have a lot of respect for for joy hateful eight was a big letdown for me yeah and actually i clearly you you expected to like it more than you did i yeah, ex- i was very I, excited for it i did not expect to like it as much as i did i thought it was going to be just purely an exercise in style and it would be fun style and a lot of fun performances and stuff um and I think an argument can be made that it is still that, but I think there's a lot more going on. Um, you know, between this and Django Unchained, I think we see Tarantino really being fascinated with race and, and race relations. And even though this very, it seems a lot more pulpy and a lot more disposable as far as the story that's being told, when you look at Samuel, for the, the fact that Samuel Jackson is the lead of the film, right? when it could have very easily been, and I think was even being set up to be Kurt Russell. Yeah. Um, and then you see the way he relates to Bruce Dern and you see the way he relates to Walton Goggins. Um, the, that little, though, and then, and, and Kurt Russell, uh, that his, his relationship to those three characters is particularly fascinating. And then you also, when, when he kills a very specific person in a very, very violent way, because this guy, it turns out a lot of people victimized, (laughs) uh, some innocent people, but this is the guy he knows for sure did it. And the one who he knows he has caught in a lie and he kills him in a particularly brutal way that is at times kind of funny, but at the same time, very disturbing. I think, um, I think a lot of the laughter is nervous, but maybe I'm just uh, projecting onto people. Um, and so, I feel like, um, I don't know. I feel like that character is, he's not necessarily likable. He's not righteous, but he is relatable because look at the world that he lives in. And in that way, compared to like the character of Django, who I think is, is well-played and well-written, but I think he's by far the least dynamic character in Django Unchained. The character, uh, Samuel Jackson's character, whose name escapes me, unfortunately, uh, uh, Marquis, Marquis, something Warren. It sounds right. Okay. But, uh, his character goes through ups and downs emotionally, philosophically. And I don't know. It's, uh, it's something that I just, the film in a way at times, the film angers me like the whole sequence where he is talking to Bruce Dern, about mm-hmm. something he may or may not have done to Bruce Dern's son. That scene angers me, but it angers me in, I think, the best possible way because I just feel like this is horrible. This is a horrible thing, and the film seems to want me to take joy in it, but maybe not. Like, And then I have to examine why I feel like it's horrible given what we know about Bruce Dern's character. Right. Yeah. And, just, and I feel like any time a film... Uh, <laughs> makes me engages me in that way where I don't know how to feel. And I have to examine my own feelings. Um, that's when I, that's when I feel really excited. It didn't crack the top 10, but it is a film that just is very, and I find myself going back to the wonderful score and a lot of the performances yeah, the score and, is and great. you know, a lot from an artistic standpoint, um, you know, art direction, photography, score performance and costume design, all that. I think it's, top notch all the way through 
and it's arguable after the intermission, maybe the script gets a little bit worse, or at least the, once the that's story, once the story me. kicks in, strictly speaking. Yeah, that's where it, yeah. that's where I, at, at intermission, I was still pretty much on board with the movie. I did think for a Quentin Tarantino movie, the first half does move a little slower than I expected. Yeah. Um, like I think I talked about on, on past episodes, like, I don't know how long they're in that that stagecoach but it feels like, like eight 20, bu- like eight days i think <laughs> it feels like 25 minutes of screen yeah. time of them talking it, it does seem to go on i feel like so, it probably is 25 minutes i yeah that, and that's that but that's a, a minor complaint yeah i really fell out of love with the movie in the second half when it becomes uh i think sadistic and i'll say this that it's interesting that we just talked about the the, the stagecoach because i feel like the amount of time spent in in the stagecoach sort of is going to sound strange sort of redeems the parts in the second half that I don't like because that's when the relationship with Walton Goggins emerges and I think we need a very a very firm idea of who Walton Goggins is from the jump as a guy who may not be a bad guy but he's kind of a bad guy and then you realize like there's a really wonderful scene where he has this monologue and you start to see him as a real person as well, talking about his father and yeah, no, that's, that stuff's good. But I think, I mean, I, and because that's the noted, the, I say note as though it's not, you know, in itself 20 minutes long, right. um, because that's the note it ends on. That's where my head is at, even though there's a solid 30 to 40 minutes of, of rough stuff there. Yeah. We can't go back and forth. Okay. Yes. Yeah, um, was that your third honorable mention or that is my fourth. There's one more, one more. Okay. Which is Robert Gordon and Morgan Neville's best of enemies. Boy, oh. I wish this is, this had been in my top 10, but it's not just barely missed it. Huh? Just barely yeah, missed I it. I like this movie. Yeah, I really loved it. It's I, I appreciate it's, it's attempted objectivity, but more than anything, I like that rather than try to make a political point, they, they do make a political point and maybe one that's a, maybe a little too reductive and simplistic, but more than anything, I like that they approach this documentary, you know, this this true life thing and see it as a character study mm-hmm. of these two people who probably hate each other in a way. It just if they had been more different, they probably would have hated each other less. There's something about they both came up in a certain type of family. They both talk a certain way. They both ran for office unsuccessfully. They're both viewed as like the height of intelligence in their political sphere. It just astounds me that because it wouldn't have occurred to me that, yes, they're both good speakers. That's probably where I would have ended and where I think a lesser filmmaker would have ended. But they decide, well, what is, and the fact that this thing was in some ways the defining moment of these characters' lives in a political way and that it seemed to haunt both of them for years after that. It's oh, until, until they both died. Yeah. Yeah. It is. And that to me is so fascinating and it goes so much beyond politics. And it actually kind of reminds me right now, actually, um, of the whole thing with the death of justice Scalia, where I recognize a lot of people don't like what he did or what he, what he said or, and that's fine. But to me, the big story to come out of that is the fact that he was best friends with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Hmm. I wrote, uh, sorry, I read the, the, the statement that she wrote where she mm-hmm. talked about their friendship and she described, it's weird to think of her using the term buddy, mm-hmm. but she described him as her best buddy. And 
but also somebody that she said, if I had an argument, if there was any weakness in that argument, he would find it. And I could always count on him to make me better. And so it's so interesting to me that it's, that it's possible to see through or see past deep philosophical differences and Um, find common ground. Henry Fonda and Jimmy Stewart were very good friends. Absolutely. Couldn't get more liberal and conservative. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let me also suggest the hosts of battleship pretension. (laughs) Um, but, uh, although I think I'm probably more liberal than some conservatives and I think you're more conservative than, than some liberals, but nonetheless, um, and it's one of those things that like, in a way there's, there's a heartbreaking element to best of enemies because you feel like, if these guys had just been able to look at things a little bit differently, they could have been the best of friends. Yeah. But indeed, they were the best of enemies. They hated each other. Yeah. I, um, Fade out. I like, uh, yeah, I like you're describing it as a character study because it is, if you're going into best of enemies to actually get a picture of the substance of the debates or of the issues of the 1968 convention that's, yeah. that's pretty, that's dealt with pretty superficially. That's not, yeah. that's not the story that, um, yeah. Robert Gordon and yeah. Neville, what is his name? Uh, Morgan Neville, Morgan Neville are, are telling it's about these two. Yeah. These it's two a guys. catalyst, maybe even a MacGuffin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. They spend they, much more of the focus is, or much more of the footage they get from the, they use, use from the debates is, the sniping yeah. than the actual uh, meat of it. All right. So those are your yep. honorable mentions. Um, mine should have had it ready, but I know what my first one is and it is uh, Mustang. Okay. Which uh, you uh, haven't seen, but I think you would really like, I think anyone would really like it. It's a really warm um, movie or warm and human movie. Um, but not, I don't necessarily mean that it's a happy movie cause it's a, it's tragic. It's about, um, uh, five sisters um, in in Turkey who's um, who who live with their uh, their grandmother and uncle, and um, they their guardians crack down on them and force them to pull out of school and be homeschooled and essentially be raised for the sole purpose of being married off through arranged marriages. Um, and it's about the ways in which these girls. Uh, bond and survive together and how these things also you know the 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 parts of their souls or spirits that don't survive this that are um that are being snuffed out um it's 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 a movie that it's a rare movie that can make you feel furious at the way that these things are happening in the world like uh in much the way that certain like Alex Gibney documentaries mm-hmm. can, but it does it with such a compassion and warmth um, and an eye toward the humanity of these five girls who are all distinct characters. Uh, it's, it's really moving. There are very few movies that are this upsetting and angering to me mm. that I look forward to watching again. Interesting. You know what I mean? All right. Next up. I can't remember if you saw this, if you didn't, you should, because I think you'd like it. Okay. Uh, Noah Baumbach's Mistress America. I have not seen it. Um, I'm, uh, this one, I, I, this is one like uh, you with Best of Enemies. A part of me really wishes this had cracked my top ten. Yeah. If only for the reason that um, I like to I like to use whatever bully pulpit I have here on Battleship Pretension to shine a light on the best comedies of the year, because mm. there's so many shitty comedies, and there's so few comedies that get considered for when you come when it comes to 
um, end of the year uh, lists. Uh, but make no mistake, Mistress America, though it has um, compelling characters and some heartfelt moments, is not a dramedy. It is a comedy first. Mm-hmm. Its main goal in its very brief and very brisk running time is to make you laugh. And it, Noah Baumbach is willing to uh, shed the uh, strictures of realism in order to do it. The centerpiece is a, uh, it, it, that dominates the second half of the film is a very long one house farce. Hmm. It's, um, uh, all the disparate characters, um, come together and show up at the house of two characters that we've heard of, but haven't seen yet at that point. And they spend about half an hour just bouncing around from different rooms in this house and running in to each other and spying on each other and, uh, locking themselves into bathrooms. And wow, I did not know that's what this movie was. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, um, it's, it is an all out farce at that point, but even when it's not a farce, it's a very funny movie. Um, that is also, I think, uh, very, uh, very wise about the, So the main character is uh, a college freshman and the second character played by Greta Gerwig mm. co-wrote the movie um, is Greta Gerwig's age about 30. Yeah. Um, and it's a movie about both the similarities <laughs> and the gulf, massive gulf between those two ages mm-hmm. uh, and how much in a time that, you know, I'm, I'm 33 I still don't feel that far removed from my 18 year old self when I think about it Yeah, or, or when I don't think about it. But when I do think about it, a lot has, has changed. And so, yeah. um, you know, uh, Lola Kirk's char- character, um, the, it gets to look first at this woman who's 30 years old and sort of represents like, this is what I could be with my life. She's free and she lives in the city and she lives on her own and she lives this exciting life. And then as she gets to learn more about, uh, about her, she sees how different and how far she is from what she actually envisions for herself. Uh, so it's a really an, an insightful movie, really sharp movie, but it is, I, I can't hammer this home enough. First and foremost is very, very funny. BP nominated for best original screenplay. Oh, good. Good. It did not win though. <clears throat> Spoiler. No, it's a, uh, it, it has been posted by the time it actually, right. it lost to the hateful eight. Also, I, th- well, I could be wrong, actually. An Oscar nominee, I can't remember if this is a BP nominee, okay. uh, my next honorable mention, is Ciro Guerra's Embrace of the Serpent. I, I don't remember. Uh, I don't yeah. think so. I don't think, I don't think enough of our writers got a chance to see it. It might right. have been just, just me and Scott because we attended I think that was the situation, yeah. Um, but, uh, man, if you, I mean, this movie is so, so far up my alley. It's... Um, to go back to what we were saying about dope, it's a movie that has lessons to impart. And I, I don't mind that at all, that it is, um, everything is geared toward illustrating, um, the various, uh, aspects of a central argument, um, which is the way that colonialism and imperialism destroys, um, native cultures, uh, in ways that are both overt and violent and much more, uh, insidious and subtle and slow and, perhaps even well-intentioned mm-hmm. that's that's the point of the movie i guess um but it is also uh 
a deeply existential and spiritual uh, movie that is as beautiful as it is um, terrifying and uh, otherworldly in ways that are both beautiful and terrifying. Uh, and it has the not entirely novel, but the interesting structure of having of taking place at two two time periods thirty roughly thirty years apart mm-hmm. um, with the same lead character played by two different actors because the we'll, we'll be hitting on that idea later on okay um, but not with this movie no um, and uh, it, it's it, I mean it's the the comparison that I um, came up with. I think this is what I said on Twitter is that it's um, uh, dead man meets apocalypse now in the Amazon. And so if that sort of thing appeals to you, um, that's, that's exactly what, uh, what that basically Anaconda, (laughs) I guess so. Uh, that's a good place to move on. Um, (laughs) that can't be true. My next, (laughs) my next honorable mention again, I, uh, I feel like I keep forgetting whether or not you've seen these movies. Um, the answer is probably no, for whatever reason, there doesn't seem to be a lot of, oh, how many movies did you see this year uh, for, I, of 2015? I didn't count. Okay. Um, I got 79. 79, like 2015. 2015 movies. films. Yes. Okay. Um, I think I'm probably around maybe a little bit more than that, but I guess there's um, not a whole lot of overlap. Yeah. Uh, so next up for me, if you haven't seen it, you will love it. Uh, it's 45 years. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You haven't seen it. I've not seen it, but you will see it, right? No question. It's your kind of movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, I, like I said, I think before, um, last time I talked about it on the show, I can't wait for you to see it because I want to have a discussion about the end. It doesn't seem like an, you know, M night Shyamalan type of like, what does the end mean movie? But yeah. it actually really is. It really is the kind of movie that, um, turns out that guy's girlfriend was dead the whole time. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> um, well, no, that's true. Uh, but that's not a surprise. Um, uh, yeah, but it, it it's a movie about that I think it you know it's a movie about someone who a couple getting ready to celebrate their forty five year anniversary. But the writer is not is like our age or maybe even younger than mm-hmm. the writer and director. So I don't know that it is meant to be a movie about a long term relationship right. as much as it is a movie about a marriage and a relationship and what um, how people behave and how much they reveal of themselves. Um, and what happens when more than they care to be revealed of themselves is revealed in a, in a marriage. And, uh, I, 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 again, we, we can't talk about, I can't talk about the end exactly, but, um, I did get into a discussion, a very not heated, but a very impassioned discussion with my wife on the way home. We saw it together on the way home because we interpreted the end very differently. Interesting. And, her interpretation is just as plausible as mine, but I think I resist it because I, I just want mine to be right more because yeah. her interpretation is, I think a bit more pessimistic hmm. than mine. Um, and, uh, I, for, for a movie that's a, you know, uh, relatively intimate, uh, you know, two person character drama to be able to spark that kind of, um, difference um and that kind of discussion it's uh yeah it's really powerful stuff all right all right and my final ever mention is one that i know you've seen and that was very much in my, it was at the top of my top 10 earlier in the year and just sort of kept getting bumped little yeah. by little and it's kenneth Branagh's cinderella okay um which i've seen twice now and is a 
truly transportive experience. It's sort of, uh, it Cinderella doesn't have a lot in common with embrace of the serpent, but (laughs) (laughs) they're both, uh, you know, while, uh, you know, certain of these movies like Mustang in 45 years, um, have realism and naturalism on Mm -hmm. their side. Embrace of the serpent and Cinderella are the opposite. They are illustrations of just how otherworldly, an experience cinema can give us yeah. while still being just as rooted in humanity um, and, and insight as the other movies. And that's Cinderella is a beautiful dream of a movie yeah. uh, that does not shy away from the more um, harsh aspects of just the random chance of life, but also, people who might be cruel uh, and, and what you might encounter in that, in, in that way. And by being honest about that, it earns its otherwise sappy or sentimental central yeah. uh, um, motivation, um, which is, I, I can't remember the exact phrase that she uses, um, but it's basically just like, be kind. What is it? So, yeah, I think it's yeah something like that. Um, you can probably find, I, I bet it's like in the memorable quotes on IMDb or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I saw Cinderella and I really, really liked it. It's, it is not near my top 10, but it is still a movie that I liked quite a bit. And one thing that I want to comment on is that now I did not see Maleficent, but by calling a Maleficent not sleeping beauty, everything about that allows you to look at that story from a different angle. Whereas this is called Cinderella they're doing a live action jungle book that is a remake. It's, it's a live action retelling of the, of Disney's jungle book. They're mm-hmm. doing the same with beauty and the beast. They're going to like, they're Disney is doing this thing that I'm excited about because even though they're basing it, they're, they're, they're going to take their cues from the animated film. I think at, I'm excited, but I'm not, but I'm still cautious because I feel like I, these could wind up just being, hey, you want to see these stories live action? Great. Now you get to. <laughs> I hope they're all like Cinderella, where they realize that, yeah, now we have, no offense to the voice actors, no offense to the animators, we now have actual actors on screen conveying things with their faces. We have, you know, Kate Blanchett doing wonderful work. And just... Uh, which can allow a certain degree of subtlety, which can allow children to still get swept up in the magic of it and adults as well, but also to see something that you won't find in the original animated film, or at least not to the degree that you can when you have uh, a close up of an actor's face or something like that, or you, we now see a world that while magical is still tangible and the actors are inhabiting it. And like you said, there's a, there is a core. This is a thing that I say about Wes Anderson when he is at his best, uh, is that yes, there's a lot of ornamentation. There's a lot of affectation, but at its best, there is a core humanity underneath all of that. And I think Cinderella is absolutely that I found myself surprised that they were so willing to without, without stopping the magic Uh to say, okay, everybody, we got to get really dark and deep here. Um, 
they just but managed not, to inc- yeah. incorporate it. It's not like um, self-consciously dark. No, it's honest, and that's the 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 phrase that I was looking for that is repeated. That is um, Cinderella's mother's uh, dying um, lesson to her is have courage and be kind. Yeah, which is could be so trite, but I think the movie illustrates very well how that's not just a trite. It's not just a a, a platitude or what have you. It's uh, I feel like I didn't use the right word there. Um, it's actually living by that philosophy yeah. is really, really difficult. Well, uh, and, it's, and it, com- it, it says that the two are connected, that sometimes yeah, to be kind yes. takes a great deal of courage. That's, that's a great point. Um, and in movies, including a lot of movies that I like that make, that, uh, glorify revenge or make justifications for violence and retribution and stuff like that. The fact that the movie, uh, this movie is so committed to its premise of not that, that, mm-hmm. It does not, I mean, I guess this is a spoiler, spoiler for Cinderella, yeah. but, um, the evil stepmother does not get her comeuppance. You right. know what I mean? The, the, I mean, she does just not in the way that, <laughs> that we tend to want. Right. And, 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 um, not through any action or even inaction on no. Cinderella's part. Cinderella actually does her best to, to make sure she's all right in the end. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, that's, that's, I mean, I I don't have kids and I don't want to tell people how to raise their kids, but these are the kind of lessons that movies can be teaching to kids that I think would be good without compromising. It managed to be all of these things without compromising any of it without Like I said, it never steps outside of the wonderful magical world that it creates in order to teach a, a valuable humanistic lesson but it also does not sacrifice the human uh, its human heart to get wrapped up in the whimsy of it all and it's and i feel like only somebody like a like a kenneth brown could have made this movie this way because i don't know just being rooted in shakespeare and rooted in a very cert, in a very right. specific type of heightened right. uh, emotion i feel like being well-versed in that serves him well for a film like this. All right, let's get into the meat of it. Let's get into oh my our gosh. actual top 10. You go first. Top 10. <laughs> right? That's it. Yeah. <laughs> but then it would be like, top 10. George Thorogood just showed up. Okay. All right. So my number 10 is one of three on my top 10 one of three films that could be viewed as a biopic. This one definitely is, but I don't know this. uh, This was a good year for unconventional biopics, I think. And it is Bill Pollard's love and mercy. All right. I saw this one. Yes, you did. You saw a lot of on a lot of the ones on my top 10, which somehow bums me out. I don't know why that is. (laughs) Um, No, see, I'm, you should be excited. I'm bummed that you haven't seen so many of mine because it puts more pressure on me to talk about them. When we've both seen them, we get to lean on each other. A yes, little but bit. I am. I am also bummed that I haven't seen yours because it just all to me. Okay. Here's a bit of my insecurity being splattered all over the microphone. Um, I feel like, as you know, I tend to worry that I am too mainstream. And when you have seen all the movies on my list, but I haven't seen any of the ones on yours, all it confirms is that uh, I don't like challenging things. And I'm just a big dumb idiot. And uh, I see what everybody sees. And you're seeing the really challenging stuff. Well, by my count, you've seen six of my ten. Hey, all right. That's not bad. That's not bad. That's not bad. Um, Okay. So, 
Yeah, Love and Mercy is just a film that I didn't... Uh, I thought it would be interesting. I didn't expect it to be amazing. But it just... There's something to be said, A, for the, the structure of it. That's going to be a, a common theme, by the way, in my top ten, is unconventional choices made by the writers and the director to make this more interesting, but more than just interesting to shed light on things. Um, and as we go back and forth in the life of, uh, Brian Wilson and we see where he, not even where he started cause it's, he's well established. The beach boys are well established in the sixties in the, in the, not even flashbacks in the earlier storyline. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we see, it's just so fascinating. The, the it's a, it's, I find it a hard film to talk about, um, because it does so many strange and wonderful things with its storytelling, with its acting. Um, and by having the, it, it's, I recognize it's not the Godfather part two, but by having <laughs> these parallel storylines and yes, it's the same person, but it's funny how the future winds up shedding light on the past. You would think it'd be the past shedding light on the future, which right. it does. But you also, it makes the past so much more tragic. When you see, like when you see uh, that Brian Wilson will eventually fall into the hands of this doctor played, I think, wonderfully by Paul Giamatti, mm-hmm. who's just so manipulative and so, uh, d- so destructive. It makes you look, you don't need to see more than one scene of Brian Wilson's father because you've already seen the results of his horrible father. And so as much as, as great as Bill camp is, which he is, um, I don't know. So there's just something about, it doesn't seem like a conceit. It doesn't seem like a, Hey, let's try this. Uh, you know, this will be fun. Yeah. It winds up being, I think just this, this fascinating glimpse into, into this man's life and it does it in a way that because a lot of biopics will show a person's whole life they'll show like 40 years in the life of a, of a painter or musician or whatever um and by focusing in on you know a year when he, in his life when he's in his you know 20s and then a year when he's in his 40s or 50s i feel like that is so brilliant because you're able to fill in those gaps and you, and you come to also realize, Oh, those gaps are probably just as interesting. Uh, but we also don't have to, we don't have to look at, you know, crappy makeup, uh, <laughs> the progression of makeup and stuff like that. And you're also allowed to watch two actors give two separate performances and then you have to link them together in your head. And I don't know. It's, I was real. I I'm, one of the reasons I'm fr- I'm frustrated that this is in my top ten and not Best of Enemies is because I can talk about Best of Enemies in a much easier way. Right. This is a film that, for whatever reason, it's surpri- It's very straightforward, and yet somehow, and I've done a whole episode of more than one lesson about it, and yet somehow I find it just a weird, uh, a hard film to get my hands around. But I find it invigorating in its in its structure, in its themes, and in and in just the general tale of, of redemption and forgiveness and, uh, you know, refusal to let the past define you and your pain define you and to just 
work through it with the help of other people provided you're able to let them in. So there's a lot going on in the movie that I, that really hits a lot of buttons for me, but they're just the right buttons that I feel like I'm not able to verbalize it as well as I would like. So you uh, enjoy the movie, right? Uh, you thought it was yeah. I, I, and I was, I was really, I, my, my, um, expectations weren't very high going in. Um, and then, so I was definitely very pleasantly surprised about it. And I was surprised in one way. I think the, um, the earlier Paul Dano section, I think when the movie is described to you, when its structure is described to you, that, that section seems like it would be the more compelling one because it's about the making of you know, these great albums and the, the height of, uh, of, of the Beach Boys and stuff like that. But I uh, was surprised to find that I was way more interested, maybe almost, and this is why the movie's not in my top 10 honorable mentions, maybe almost to the movie's fault, more interested in the later John Cusack stuff. Um, I don't think that's, I don't think that's a bad thing. Okay. Um, well, I, I said before, um, I, part of the problem is there's an imbalance in, um, on-screen talent. You've basically got in the early sections, you've got mm-hmm. Paul Dano and then a, and a couple scenes, you've got Bill camp, mostly yeah. it's Paul Dano and a bunch of other young actors who aren't at his level. Right. Whereas in the later section, you've got John Cusack and Elizabeth Banks and Paul Giamatti yeah. all together. Um, and all doing great, great work. And that stuff just, I think, um, gels better. The one thing I do want to point out that we haven't talked about, um, cause I feel like we've been doing, uh, uh, Matt Zoller cites a disservice and not talking about filmmaking enough in this discussion, but I do want to talk about the music in yeah. love and mercy, which is, um, sort of a, it's like the, uh, the Beatles Cirque du Soleil love thing, right? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Where it's a, I don't know, mashups of beach boys songs. Yeah. It, you know, it's, it's, a a new score in a way, um, created out of a montage or pastiche or whatever yeah. of Beach Boys songs. Which just sort of, <coughs> which which serves a few functions. One is kind of puts you in the mindset of the man that wrote all these songs that whether they have, whether he has already recorded them or he's about to record them, it's just the idea that there is just music perpetually swirling around in his head, uh, which I think is a fascinating idea. Yeah. I will say, um, as far as the early sections, I don't, li- I, I, I tend, I, even before I saw this movie, I tend to listen to good vibrations a lot cause it's mm-hmm. uh, one of the greatest songs ever written, but I listen to it differently now, I think hmm. because of, because of the movie, I really think of it as, um, a min it's a super sweet, uh, good vibrations is essentially like a five minute mini symphonic suite. You know, yeah. it has all these different movements, um, that I think I knew before. I obviously I listened to the song before I knew that it had these changes and movements, but I, I think of it as a grander work now yeah. than I did before I saw the movie. Well, and I've always, <clears throat> I've always loved God only knows. I think it's a marvelous song. It's very effective. Um, and that's the thing is, and you know what? Okay. This does go to something that I, that I did want to say, um, about just biopics in general, the good ones, it gives, it sheds light on the person that created this thing. So if it's a biopic about a creative person, that's, that's very, uh, uh, specific to the kind of thing that I like. It sheds light on who they are while also reminding us and celebrating what they did and what they created. And so, yes, I, I've, I've always loved God only knows. And I'm not a huge beach boys fan in general, but I always had a certain degree of respect for them. Uh, and, by showing 
some of the choices that he made that were unconventional. I, I don't think it even, I don't think it ever occurred to me that there were sleigh bells and God only knows. I think, <laughs> I mean, if you had asked me to sort of pinpoint certain instrumentation, I probably would have arrived there, but it didn't ever occur to me. So as he's listing all of the instrumentation to his father and he says sleigh bells, I'm like, Oh yeah, he is going crazy because <laughs> that's not in there. Right. Oh wait, it is. And that's, and it, and it, and it all works together. Yeah. And so just the idea that he is visionary enough to come up with this when everybody else is saying no. And that for us, it's the most convention, not the most conventional, but you know, we grew up with these songs existing and everybody acknowledging that they're amazing. It's weird to believe that there was a time when people heard them and said, no, thank you. And that pet sounds was well received by critics, but nobody was interested in buying it. Like you want to go back in time and be like, what are you guys fucking idiots? <laughs> like stand on a street corner and be like, you're all idiots. Yeah. Here, I bought a bunch of these albums. Just take them, <laughs> you know? Um, all right, moving on. But I'm sure a lot of people could say that about us now. Uh, you know, if some artist puts out something that we're not interested in, Yeah. you know, so yeah, I don't like, mean to, like, I don't mean if, to take that attitude about history, but yeah. Dukes Bentley might be the, uh, Beach Boys of the Future. Maybe no the, question. I don't um, think I know who that is. I, didn't, I don't know that I'm saying that right. <laughs> but uh, I could be doing, uh, I could be on the wrong side of history by <laughs> ignoring the music of Dirks Bentley. <laughs> I um, do like, you're really wrapping your mouth around that. <laughs> okay, go on. Okay, my number 10. Here's, here's one you've seen. Uh, Adam McKay's The Big Short. Indeed. Almost made your uh, overrated Almost. Uh, slot. So obviously. But I, but, I, but I liked it too much. Um, good. <laughs> but we are not entirely on the same page about this. Um, I, I respond well to a movie that, I, again, I, I feel like I'm, I'm making this point over and over again. I said it with Dope. I said it with Embrace of the Serpent. It feels like Adam McKay had to tell us this. Like he really had to get this out of him, and he yes. had and he had to had tell had tell us this in whatever way felt uh, most helpful to him and most useful to him. To compare, um, I'll, I'll compare The Big Short to um, one of the dullest movies of 2015, Concussion, mm. which is also a movie that has a a a burning motivation at its, at its core. You know, it really wants in theory, it really wants to, uh, expose the way that the NFL has, um, misled or ignored, um, the problems of uh, that, that have befallen its, uh, its employees, but there's no, there's no vigor behind it. Whereas the big short, vigorous might be the best the best word to describe the big short the movie comes out just right out of the gate just grabbing you and shaking you and not in a way that is like um i don't mean like a guy Ritchie action movie where it's super kinetic mm-hmm. i just mean um this movie feels like buckshot out of a shotgun rifle like mm-hmm. it's sort of disjointed and in some ways it's very disjointed um you know, for those spoiler for those who don't know, the trailers that make it look like it's four huge stars hanging out together the whole yeah. time. Like, um, you know, a lot of them are never on the same in the screen of the screen at the same time as the other ones. Uh, it's it's sort of all over the place. It's um, again, kind of like Mister America. It's a comedy mm-hmm. um, that I think because it's about such a serious and real life issue, 
Um, people are not thinking of it as a comedy. Um, but I think Adam McKay, again, feels like he has to get this point across and he's like, well, comedy is what I do. So yeah. why, why try to make a movie that isn't me? I'm going to make a movie that feels like it came from the same guy who made Anchorman in a way, in terms of, in a being, way, uh, I mean, you, you disagree. Mm. I will say that, you know, some of the, some of the, uh, choices that he makes as far as like the cutaways there's a the instinct to do that is almost in a in a way it comes it springs from a desire to have people understand something Mm -hmm. but the instinct of how to do it is almost silly or at the very least absurd and that's the same instinct that you see in like an anchorman kind of thing so I, i can see it um but there's also things um the movie i think here's how i described the general tone of the movie um, in my review. I can't remember the exact words. Hopefully it was more uh, succinct than what I'm trying to piece together now. But it's like, say you're in an argument with someone, right? Mm-hmm. And they say something stupid or that you think is stupid that you disagree with. Yeah. And you're so angry, you can't even come up with a good comeback. You yeah. just mock what they said in a stupid voice. <laughs> yeah. That's what the movie is. It's so angry that all it can do is sort of loosely um approximate mm. what these guys are really like but the movie never feels real do you know what i mean and, yeah and, then it he's, does not. and he sort of encourages that by having the characters you know having these cutaways or having the characters break the fourth wall or something that i'm convinced is intentional the bad wigs on more than one yeah at least three of the main characters have have really bad like yeah. cheap fake looking wigs and i think that's intentional it's supposed to look kind of stupid and kind of like um, you're supposed you're not supposed to forget that these are actors portraying these people yeah. because uh, it almost hmm <clears throat> and I guess that's what I'm saying about the, the the how it feels like the same guy as Anchorman because Anchorman is also a you know it's a post it's a post postmodern comedy that uh, never lets you forget that it's uh, a, a movie it's not actually yes, invested in its story at all um, and, uh, big short is kind of like that, that it's not, it is not in any way, in, not, in not in any way beholden to, um, the conventions of, uh, cinema. I mean, not anyway, that's an overstatement, but two things, less, less beholden. Number one, it just occurred to me that Steve Carell is in both Anchorman and the big short and think of how different <laughs> his characters are. Yeah. The other thing, and this actually, your, your, your wig comment got me thinking. Oddly enough, which is a thing that I say all the time. Um, <laughs> Usually when you're talking about the Whigs and the Tories. Absolutely. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm you know, thanks, National Review. Um, well, Facebook groups. That's a callback <laughs> to the last movie journal. So, so I'm sure you've seen those TV shows where they have like re- those like crime shows where they have like reenactments. Yeah. Where... The reenactment, the, if there's makeup, it's not that good. Yeah. The, if there's wigs, they're not that good. And the whole time, yes, you're seeing a reenactment, but you're also, it's also being told to you, which there's, which means there's often a narrator. Right. Ex- so while the characters themselves are not saying something to you, this is still something being told at you. And the reality of the reenactment is not super important. So much yeah. as it is a means to convey information. Yeah. And in that way, 
big short is for me much more acceptable. Yeah. And I, so I, I think that's, that's a great example of what I'm, what I'm talking about. Okay. That's, that's intriguing. I like the idea of it. Um, there are a couple things here and there that I, that I get frustrated with, uh, about the film, but by and large, you mentioned, uh, to, I'll go back to something positive. Um, you mentioned concussion. Mm-hmm. Not as one of my top 10 films of 2015. In case you're just tuning in. Oh, that's a weird thing. If people were tuning in, so, you know, <laughs> someone's listening to this, they get an hour and 20 minutes in and then someone walks in. Hey, what are you listening to? Oh, do they like concussion? Um, I've talked about, it's weird. I've talked about concussion with some friends in regards to other movies this year, uh-huh. big short spotlight, uh-huh. which we'll be talking about in a moment, I'm sure. But, um, yeah. in both cases, both Big Short and Spotlight work better than Concussion. Why? And in my opinion, it is because all three are in their own ways an expose. Big Short and Spotlight, just like all the President's Men or other journalistic type movies like uh, uh, Chatter Glass or, or that sort of thing, it just it's just a flood of information or JFK is another one, just a flood of information. They just throw it at you over and over and over again so that you just, so that like you yourself feel almost overwhelmed. Like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe there's so much here. Uh Concussions seem to not want to do that. Almost like they were afraid to do it, that they might alienate you. And they wanted to try to, with concussion, I thought, I think they wanted to get to a, uh, an emotional core, which is fine. Except I think the emotional core, I think the emotional response has to come from the information first. Right. Um, And so I think that's when you're making an expose, it's important that you hit people with just one thing after another and then and then trust the audience to process it in a way that they will arrive at the anger as opposed to lead with the emotion because i never got a sense of who the who the for lack of a better term villains are or what they've done in concussion i absolutely know what the catholic church did in spotlight i have a general sense of what <laughs> people do of, of what various people did in the big short but everything is just very vague and amorphous in something like like uh, concussion, and so the Big Short at least understands what is required in a movie like this to get the audience invested. And by making it a comedy, it's it's the kind of comedy. It's this very bitter, angry comedy where it's just like we have to laugh at how horrible this is, you know? Because if we don't laugh our heads are just going to explode, <laughs> you know, um, as personified in my, per, in my opinion, perfectly by Steve Carell in almost every scene. Yeah. Just, you can just uh, like, he is about to have a stroke. Yeah. Uh, and I love that about him. Yeah. Okay. Moving right. on. Number nine for you. Uh, as I just mentioned, number nine for me is Tom McCarthy's spotlight. All right, let's wait. Uh, I'll go into my number nine, okay. uh, which is now I've, I, I'm usually very good about writing down the director's names, but I forgot to do that this year. Um, but, uh, my number nine is the diary of a teenage girl. Okay. Um, which I, uh, really wish I got the chance to revisit before this so I could talk about it more in depth because I haven't seen it since July or August, whenever it, uh, whenever it came out. But, uh, it is, you know, I, I think 
you and for both of us are, uh, our overrated movies of the year were, um, indie coming of age dramedies, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Diary of a Girl is also an indie coming of age dramedy. Um, but it manages to be, uh, to be different in its, uh, boldness and its, I guess, frankness about its own boldness. Hmm. Uh, it's a female coming of age story, which is not necessarily something new, but it's a specifically a female sexual coming of age story. Okay. Um, and it's a movie that recognize something, recognizes something, uh, out loud that I think a lot of, um, our culture doesn't, which is that sexual awakening in, in our culture, um, for girls looks a lot different than sexual awakening mm-hmm. for boys. It just, that's just the way that, uh, the sexes, re- the genders relate to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, the way things are set up, some of it is biological. Um, and, uh, unfortunately I think, there is, uh, I don't just, I don't think it's pretty obvious that we do have a double standard for sexual behavior among, uh, young, uh, young men and young women that we, uh, certain things are encouraged or at least forgiven or, uh, looked at smirkingly at boys and are judged more harshly, uh, in terms of, um, you know, if someone is a little more outgoing with their sex- sexuality, girls um, get judged more harshly for that um, than boys. And uh, I would venture th- to say it depends on the culture. Well, I'm uh, talking about our culture, American culture. Okay, I, in 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 Christian culture, I disagree. Uh, well, at least in the one that I was raised, you guys in. hate sex across the board. First off, that's not true. <laughs> but also, I would venture to say. In the cons, in the in the idea of like lust, which is just almost like a selfish sex, that is associated primarily, if not exclusively, with men, and to the point that right. Sorry, this this is a conversation for not merely another episode, another podcast completely. I apologize. No, but, but I, I don't think what you're saying contradicts what I'm saying. Well, it just it's in the sense that I, in my experience. Any kind of uh, sexual awakening, whether it be viewed positively or negatively, uh, the church tends to be, again, in my experience, in the churches that I have gone to, which admittedly have been a number of them over the course of my life, um, tends to be much more understanding and willing to listen to girls. Okay. Whereas I don't know the uh, this, I don't have your experiences. So I yeah. That. Whereas whereas with boys, it's just like, all right, look, we all know what you want to do. You're monsters. <laughs> they don't say that, but that's kind of what's implied. Like it's there's a, a whole lot of shame uh, associated with that. But admittedly, I'm inclined to feel shame, so that's somewhat on me. Okay. But um, it's a thing that, uh, as you know, Jen and I have uh, done our fair share of like pre-marriage counseling in uh, as a function of our church. And one thing that we talk about a lot is sex and just kind of trying to even if I uh, subscribe to certain moral ideas that the church does implementation and tone, I am very frustrated with, especially when talking to like the guy, because invariably they feel like they are, that they have been doing something wrong their entire life. 
because I don't know. It's, it's hard to explain, but But I still think what what you're talking about, I I think in a way, yes, the implementation is different, I I guess, but it gets around to the same sort of thing where, uh, in both cases, sex is seen as more in the realm of boys than girls. That is true. Yes. Um, and, uh, so I think to get back to, the movie that we're talking about here. Yes, I'm sorry. I, I'm <laughs> no, sorry to have distracted. That's what our podcast is. I, I enjoy that that sort of thing. Um, yeah, but you don't listen to the podcast. <laughs> uh, that's true. I, I mean, I literally, I barely even listen <laughs> yeah, <I can't. laughs> when I'm <laughs> when we're doing it. Um, and so to have a movie that is again not celebrating necessarily mm-hmm. um her sexual awakening because a lot of it is really troubling and really dangerous yeah but presenting it with a frankness that is uh really refreshing and sort of shocking at times um but uncommon uh in in uh in film in american film i guess uh particularly uh it's it definitely gets points for just she i didn't want to like reduce it to audacity but just for being something that i hadn't seen much of before mm-hmm. the diary of a teenage girl gets points for that it gets points deducted for its boring name <laughs> like that i keep every time i say it i'm like is that the, am i saying that right is it yeah <laughs> surely uh um, mariel heller by the way mariel is the director um but beyond beyond that, it's um, a fantastically well acted movie. It also has um, uh, a great. Um, I, I, I don't. I guess there's. I don't want to call it magical realism, but the the girl, mm-hmm. she's not. Uh, <laughs> sex isn't the only thing she does with her life. It's okay. Well, it's a big part of what she's doing with her life. But she's also into. Uh, it takes place in the 1970s in San Francisco, and you know the sort of underground comics. C-O-M-I-X scene hmm. is big there and she's getting into that. And so she draws a lot. And so sometimes her drawings are part of the movie, if that makes sense. Oh, she's that's fun. Like, um, like American Splendor. It's very much like American Splendor in that way. But it, like, the, you know, there'd be a part where she's walking down the street next to a drawing that she made that's animated that's of of a woman who's a comics artist, artist that she's a fan of. So they're walking together. You know, that's at, cool. So at a certain point she you know, sprouts wings and flies around her bedroom a little bit. Uh, it's a, it's a movie that is fantastical and also drags you back down to, uh, you know, terra firma to go back to that flying thing, uh, with how, um, how, how, how Frank and, uh, again, upsetting and dangerous. A lot of her sexual behavior, uh, can be, but in the end, kind of like with, like I said, with, with Mustang earlier, it still finds hope in basic humanity. Um, it still, um, is, it, it still has a way of saying that, uh, um, some of what this girl is doing is bad for her. Not all of it is bad for her just because it's sex, but also, she's a good person and she's a smart person. And to a certain extent, um, we need to trust that this is something she's going through and that she'll come out of it. Uh, I, I, I find the movie really refreshing and also, um, it's funny too. I don't think I gave a good impression of that, yeah. but, uh, Kristen Wiig plays uh, her mom and she's great. Who's the dad? Um, well, it's not a dad. Um, okay. the, well, the dad is, um, 
I forget who shows up as the dad. I guess the father figure is the what father, I'm thinking about. Or the, yeah, the mother's boyfriend is Alexander um, uh, Skarsgård. Oh, okay. Um, and now, yeah, I'm forgetting because her dad does show up at, at, at a point, and I'm okay. forgetting who plays him. It's going to bug me. Uh, what's next for you? Next for me is... This is your number eight. Number eight. Oh, Christopher Maloney is the dad. Oh, okay. That's nice. Yeah. Um, next for me is James Ponsoldt's The End of the Tour. Oh, I saw this one. Okay. Uh, and this one, I would venture to... I said it was when I was talking about uh, biopics, I, inc- I incorporated this one in, even though it is definitely not that. But it is... There, there's a, a similarity because we are... In the, in the way of like something like a movie uh, like Capote, because we are seeing a very small chunk of time in a character in, in a in a real person's life, uh, specifically a very pivotal moment in their life. And so, I have not read Infinite Jest. I know that's somehow a sin. Uh, sorry, everybody. I don't have the five years it would take me yeah. to read it. Yeah, I haven't read it either. Um, again, I only saw one movie in the last week, which was Deadpool. Um, which, you know what, frankly, I think, I think Dave Froster Wallace would have loved that. Would, uh, uh-huh. just, that's, that's one of the things that I, that I come away from. I get such a strong sense of who David Foster Wallace is as a person, both who he is, who he would like to be and his frustration of trying to reconcile the two of those. Um, and his his obsession with pop culture and the way he engages with it is something I find very interesting. Um, but for those that, that don't know, it's it's uh, David Foster Wallace and David Lipsky, I believe. Okay, uh, that sounds right. Played by uh, Jesse Eisenberg, and then Wallace is played by um, Jason Segel, BP nominated by the way for Best Actor, um, and so Lipsky is just. Well, this, I would argue supporting actor. I don't know. It's, it's tough. It's tough with a movie like that. I, Je, Jesse Eisenberg is definitely a lead. It's, it's arguable whether he is, I, I, I view the film a lot. Uh, I, I sort of view it like Amadeus. And, mm-hmm. uh, in that sense, both of those uh, guys were considered lead. They're both nominated for lead anyway. Okay. Um, and so you have this aspiring writer who has the opportunity to hang out with, with a hero of his and report on the last couple weeks of uh, a book tour. And it's not, I think it's only like three days. It's only, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. It's a very short amount of time. And so the two bond together and they're also, and so the, the Lipsky character is trying to get a story on this guy, but he's also trying to connect with him in a, in a human way and David Foster Wallace is also looking for that connection, but he's also very aware that somebody is trying to report on him. So the, those are some. So those are but two. Also, those are two layers. Yeah, it's beyond that because it's not just a human way he's trying to connect with them. It's an opportunistic way, and David Foster Wallace is right to have his guard up. No question about it. But on top of that, so those are two levels. Then there's also just, and this this you could say that this fits under the personal thing, but I think it goes beyond that. Cause that's relational. It is also two characters looking for a very specific type of validation from one another. Um, and within that you get, uh, envy and insecurity. Um, surprisingly on both people's parts, like you would think it would just be Jesse Eisenberg as he meets his hero. He also is a little bit envious of him, but no, you actually get a surprising amount of it from David Foster Wallace. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and it's just this this the way they talk it's it's rare to see characters who are as self-aware and as blatantly insecure as I am um, or as people I know where it's just they can just keep digging down and down and down as they analyze what who they are and how they relate to other people and you have these two guys who are very aware of themselves very aware of each other very aware of what they want and then what they feel like they should want and as they and they also are both very talkative and they will just keep talking in circles digging deeper only to realize there's no end here it's just going to keep going until they either stop or just decide that they're you know to quote uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, digging in the wrong place. Um, and that, that, may, that may all sound very strange, but that is the nature of the film, is these two guys, and it's not, you know, it's a, it's a very naturalistic film in the way that, it's, that it is uh, shot and cut together. Um, so everything, all, all the insanity that I'm talking about is just in the performances and then in the dialogue. And... And in the end, I feel like these these two guys are closer to each other, but also f- still feel very lone, uh, very alone. Um, but it, along with Amadeus, it also sort of reminds me of Lost in Translation, where these guys, while they definitely do run in the same circles and and have very similar goals, uh, they interacted with each other for a very short time, but in a very intimate way. Mm-hmm. And during that time, there was they had uh, they had fights, they had reconciliation, they had all of this, um, and then they never really saw each other again. And only when and there's a, there's a framing device in it where mm-hmm. an older David Lipsky is informed of David Foster Wallace's suicide, and in that moment, obviously he's he's much more successful now, and. He he, undoubtedly knew about how important this interaction was at the time. But now that now that it is confirmed that well, this is the only time you were ever going to have with him. There's no chance that you're going to reconnect with him. Um, he the character I think suddenly realizes that oh, this might be the most pivotal moment of my life <laughs> as a person, as an artist, um, and. So that's sorry, and that I feel like I'm not doing a great job of talking about it. As it turns out, there are a lot of movies this year that I just because they're dealing with artists and artists that have mental issues. You know, Brian Wilson had a series of breakdowns. David Foster Wallace killed himself, mm-hmm. um, and there's just something. There's a tragedy to to all of this, while also finding tremendous beauty in it. And I guess that is the nature of uh, trying to unravel a creative person. But I think the difference between Love and Mercy and the end of the tour is that Love and Mercy is about um, it's it's it has more grandeur to it because sure. um, because Brian Wilson was particularly troubled. Mm-hmm. And I think what's so touching to me about the end of the tour is that it's really about everyday insecurity. Yeah, like yeah. David Foster Wallace has the kind of insecurity that someone who is not David, not a, uh, not a David Foster Wallace is still going to have. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, that, that, uh, that everydayness and that, um, Wallace, the character, at least his 
his desire to even to the point possibly of affectation, uh, or at least that's something that Lipsky uh, accuses him of wants to be normal. Yeah. You know, he does not want to be of the literary world. Um, uh, I, I think that's reflected th- throughout the movie and um, it has a great, um, it, it gives the movie an ability to be relatable. Uh, yeah. to people who don't have you know there's a reason that i never connected to synecdoche new york because mm. i um i don't think like that person and i don't yeah. like uh it's it's very hard for me to wrap my head around those kind of thoughts and troubles whereas the end of the tour is is uh it does have its own kind of grandeur but it's in an, an everyday universal relatability i also think which actually sorry which does speak to a thing that i had said er- earlier when i said it's rare to find characters that feel the way I do mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as an, in, as in depth. And it's not to say that, Oh, I'm on the level of David Foster Wallace. It's that the film manages to find a way to bring him to my level yeah. and make him make his type of insecurity understandable and relatable. I'm sorry. You were about to say something. Uh, I also have a, a, a reading of the end of the tour. Um, kind of like how I said uh, a year or two ago that, this is the end movie that also has Jason mm-hmm. Siegel in it briefly is a movie that is, um, about a lot of things, but is also secretly about, um, a Canadian who has become Americanized. <laughs> yeah. and, um, I think, um, the end of the tour is a movie about the difference between the Midwest and New York city. Sure. And I think it's a, it's the rare movie that takes place in the Midwest that doesn't condescend to the Midwest at all. Um, it, the movie Maybe really, with Joan Cusack a bit, but uh, <laughs> See, I think it's very warm with her. I don't yeah. know. Um, uh, that movie feels like the Missouri and the Illinois that I know. I mean, it takes place yeah. mostly in Illinois, right? Um, uh, yeah, I believe so. Normal or Bloomington normal. Is that where he's teaching? Or I don't recall. Is it Champaign? I can't remember which university he's at, no. <clears throat> but it takes place mostly in Illinois and then a little bit in Minnesota, right? That's where they go. That's where yes. Joan Cusack is. Um, and it really does feel like that, but it's not, it's not, um, it's not stocked with characters who are dumb mm-hmm. or it's not stocked with characters who are, uh, condescendingly folksy who are right. written as, as, as being some sort of, uh, relic of the past. It's yeah. stocked with regular people, but who are also Midwestern in their own way. Yeah. And, and that's an interesting way of, of looking at it because that would explain a lot of David Foster Wallace's insecurity that he, in some ways an argument could be made and I, I don't agree with this, but that his way of thinking made him popular with the New York crowd, right? Even though he's not from there. And so now who is he? Right. And just trying to, and so obviously he's going to feel like a fraud no matter who he's with. Uh, and that's something that I find really fascinating. It's it's a marvelous film. I really enjoy it. Yeah, let's move on uh, to my number eight. <clears throat> it is uh, a another uh, a documentary of sorts called "Listen to Me, Marlin." Mm. Uh, that is, I guess, I always feel pretentious using this term, but it's more of a tone poem, I think, ah. than it is a, a documentary. Um, it it's sort of it doesn't uh, adhere to any. Um, chronological structure of the life of Marlon Brando. Um, I mean, I guess in broad, in broad, broad, broad strokes, it is chronological. Um, but it's, it feels more, 
uh, impulsive and instinctual, and it feels like uh, Synapse is making connections because it really does feel like it's um, inside the mind of Marlon Brando. And that's sort of the funny thing about the title is that it sounds like it's external. It sounds like someone talking to Marlon Brando, Mm. but it's Marlon Brando talking to himself. That's, um, that's what the film feels like. Like, like you've become sort of, uh, lost in Marlon Brando's own memories. And the narration is by him, uh, because of recordings that he made, Mm -hmm. he would talk into his tape recorder at home all the time. Um, and, uh, it, I guess sort of like you were talking about with love and mercy. It is sort of like a biopic of a famous person, but it doesn't, um, it's not that concerned. And I mean, again, it, it does tell the story. So you do hit some of the big, the big parts, but it's not, I, you get the impression that these milestones, um, you know, appearing in certain movies or, um, you know, uh, not attending the Oscars or, you know, the thing. And there are also some more tragic things in Ronald Brando's life. Um, it feels like they're in there, not because they're big events in the eyes of the audience or Marlon Brando's fans, but because they're big to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're seeing everything from inside, uh, pretty much from through his eyes, from inside his mind. Uh, and the, it, it just, there's nothing there's there's so little that's conventional uh about it but it it still gets its uh story across and its impression across uh and it's uh incredibly moving and yeah. uh, let's move on okay uh number seven right that's what we're on yep. number seven for me is mad max fury road directed all by right. george uh, miller so get some more water all right I guess. Oh, so water is very important that people get water in Mad Max Fury Road. No question about that. I'm addicted that. to it. <laughs> Cultural osmosis. <laughs> I know. I don't. You don't have to see Mad Max Fury Road to know all, all kinds of shit about Mad Max Fury Road. That's true. Um, yeah. So this is a film that. Um, what a strange little miracle of a film because it just feels as though George Miller, who. I feel like anything that I can say about the film, people have already said, but the fact that he is an older gentleman and could make a film as vibrant and just as unapologetically batshit crazy as Mad Max Fury Road, I feel like this is maybe one of the most uncompromised uh, films ever, even though notoriously, not notoriously, uh, maybe, um, he wanted to shoot it in black and white and the, and the studio said, no, we're not going to do that color, please. And he goes, all right, you want color? <laughs> Fuck you with your color. It's going to be assaultive and you're going to hate it. Um, and it's just, he, he does everything on his own terms and it's just a film that is, it's, it's kinetic. It feels small to say it's energetic. It's so much more than that. It is just, is just screaming off of the screen and just my eyes are just locked on what is happening. I'm invested in the, the characters and the story. I find it so fascinating that in this film, Max is primarily an observer 
who just kind of goes with the flow. He is a reactive character. Occasionally he takes initiative, but it is only, it's like an hour in after he has been dragged along and the more proactive character is Charlize Theron. And so, you know, people have talked about how it's uh, this feminist uh, story. I don't know if I would say it's that I, not that I'm opposed to that, but I just feel like it, maybe it speaks volumes that a film where it's, it recycles. I don't mean that in a negative way, just the standard, almost a Western idea mm-hmm. of, Oh, there's all these, uh, you know, prostitutes or slave girls or whatever, or immigrants, whatever it is you want to say that, uh, this, power mad guy feels like he owns and uh, we're going to set them free. That's, mm-hmm. you know, that's like, that's what broken trail was about uh, like 10, 15 years ago with Robert Duvall. Um, that's not a new thing, but that people will view that as this feminist idea uh, is something that I find uh, telling, I would say about uh, the culture in which we live. Not that I fault them for that, but, but that, you, but I mean, it's, the, I, mean, I, I haven't seen the movie, but the character, the lead character, or at least the most active character you said is a, is a woman. That's the difference between that and Broken Trail, right? I guess that's true. Yeah. So I, I mean, I think that's probably what people are and, responding and, to. And she and she kind of got herself. She yeah, she took the initiative. She got herself out of a very specific situation. It's tough because I don't want to spoil anything for you, David. Um, so she got herself out of yeah. out of a specific situation. After- after eight months or whatever, I'm really, I'm just a, I, I just haven't gotten around to it. <laughs> you guys, yet. you guys just <laughs> hang on. Let me plug my ears. Um, so it's just, again, at this point in the same way that you said, you just, you don't have to have seen the film at this point to have picked right. up a lot about it. And in that same way, anything I have to say, I feel like I will be just repeating what other people say. It is just, I'm looking at it on my shelf right now and I'm lo- I haven't watched it since I saw it in the theater because I feel like definitely something will get lost uh, between <laughs> that, between that and video. But I don't know. I, I just, I feel like I need to be in a very specific mood to watch it. The mood is I need to be prepared to be exhausted at the end of something, but invigorated for two straight hours hmm. and never be let down by the music by the visuals by the performances by the makeup it also happens to have one of the best villains of the year um as far as style and performance and writing it's just this strange anomaly of a film and it just felt like george miller for what i don't know why i view him as being somehow combative with the film but it almost is it is if he looked at the world and just said Eh, fuck you. I'm just going to make another movie and I, maybe you'll like it. Maybe you won't. I don't know. I don't give a shit. I'm George Miller. I'm going to do what I want. And you know what I want? (laughs) I want to, I want to hurt you. I want to hurt you with a film. And that sounds like the movie is bad. It is not. It is just, it's a film that will not be ignored ever. Um, it's, and I say, and I, yes, I am quoting <laughs> fatal attraction when I say that. Uh, and I, I, I feel like I'm not doing justice to it cause there are people that love this movie and I do too. Um, but only number seven, only number, there are six movies that I love more. <laughs> All right. Uh, my number seven, let's talk about it. It's Tom McCarthy spotlight. Indeed. This was your number 10 or nine, nine, nine. 
Um, it's higher on your list, so you should be the first one to talk about it. Okay, and also you just talked for a little while. That's true. Uh, I think you compared this movie to The Big Short earlier, and I definitely understand why. Uh, To a certain extent. You you made a good point as to why they're both exposés, but this does come at it from a different point of view, um, because Spotlight is a movie that doesn't feel... It doesn't feel angry. And I don't think that means that it's not an angry movie. I think it might be just more controlled, even headed, um, even keeled, mm-hmm. I guess. Level headed is the, the, the actual thing that people say. People don't say even headed. Um, uh, a more controlled anger in that it's. Um, whereas the big short is yelling the facts at you, mm-hmm. uh, Spotlight is presenting them very coolly and carefully and calmly and building its case. Um, and it finds, uh, narrative momentum and drama in, in that as other movies, like, uh, all the president's men have done before. And I feel like this might be, I mean, this, there are other movies you can compare to all the, Pre- all the president's men. There are a lot of other, other journalism movies. Um, but, I think Spotlight might be the first movie since All the President's Men to really earn that comparison. Like, I think so, yeah. Spotlight, I mean, it feels weird to say about a movie that's so recent, but Spotlight might be on the level of All the President's Men. It's, it, it, it really is that good. And um, uh, a point that I make every chance I get, even though it seems kind of obvious, is that um, one of the things that cinema can do well um, in any form, uh, is make a story or make drama out of process because mm-hmm. it exists fourth dimensionally. You can see the way things come together over time. And when a movie is this good, you can also see the way that, um, the people who are shaping this information are also shaped by it. And, uh, I think spotlight again, for a movie that's mostly about people, writing and interviewing and writing um, has a great deal of forward momentum and feels um, tense without ever feeling like it's having to, uh, you know, uh, manufacture tension. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Um, Yeah. uh, You know, you mentioned that there's an anger there, but it's not the same kind of anger as the big short. And I think it's because of who these characters are. And, and the world that they live in, because it's very much a Boston movie and this idea of it being a very small insular community. And so it's very difficult to, if you're one of these reporters, they're feeling a number of things. One is like, we've got that, we've got a great story, but the more they get into it, the more they realize like, this is the kind of story that yes, it is happening elsewhere, but it's happening here for a very specific reason because of the type of community we have and the tie and the amount of power we've let the church have. And that's on us. I think that's the big thing is there's, there's a fair amount of guilt in the film. Uh, as we see over, over the course of the film revealed through Michael Keaton's character, like you, it's hard to get angry at the perpetrator when you realize that you 
could have played a role mm-hmm. in stopping them. And then it's just like, you can still get, absolutely. You can still find Well, they, you know, they started it, you know, but I could have tried, I could have stopped it somehow. That's one way. Then there's the other idea. And this comes from, uh, Mark Ruffalo's, uh, Oscar scene. Um, <laughs> that's mean to say, I'm sorry, everybody. Uh, I don't think it's mean to say. <laughs> Well, it's a powerful moment. I'll say that it doesn't feel like pandering or, or, or that it's just Oscar baiting. I think it's a very powerful moment in which he talks about, it could have been any one of us. So there's the feeling of we died. All of us dodged a bullet. Mm -hmm. We easily could have been one of these victims and we weren't, which by the way, can provide its own sense of guilt. You know, the idea of survivor's guilt, you know, why not me? Um, so that's the thing. There is an anger, but there's also this very mournful quality to it. But in the midst of all of it, it's we cannot lead with our anger. We cannot lead with our mourning or our guilt. We have a job to do. And the best way we can deal with any of those emotions is to do our job the best way we can. Um, And that's why the it's weird. Of all the performances that people talked about as being possible Oscar contenders, the, my two favorites are the ones that were never in contention, which is Liev Schreiber and Stanley Tucci, mm. the two outsiders that should be noted. And the ones that are, that are best able to remove themselves from the emotion and say, and then Michael Keaton can kind of get on board and say, we can't do this yet. The reason that you want to do it, talking to Mark Ruffalo, the reason you want to do it is because you are angry. If we do this, if we do this right, your anger will absolutely be taken care of. But we need to make sure we do it right. We can't just lash out and take out a handful of these people. We need to get all of them and and deal with the system. And he is very much getting that from the stabilizing influence of Liev Schreiber's character. And then you also get a lot of anger you get genuine anger, like an outsider's anger from Stanley Tucci, but you also get a guy who understands I cannot lead. And, but that's the thing. He's also dealing very specifically with victims. He's representing victims. He can't lead with anger either. He has to lead with justice and, and a a sense of uh, a definite goal he needs to achieve. So there's just so much going on. And in a way, well, I think the filmmaking in all the president's men is better because there's a better sense of, I think of paranoia. Um, this one, I think the reporters, they are reporting their own story in a way, whereas Woodward and Bernstein are not, they're completely objective. But I think in terms of filmmaking, I think now, and you're a a big Tom McCarthy man, so maybe you Mm -hmm. disagree with me on this, but I feel like this is a real step up in terms of visual storytelling for him because he seems so much more confident. Whereas I feel like in his past films, there's a certain, there's a certain sense of maybe he's putting his thumb on the scale a little, trying a little too hard to come up with a unique way of presenting certain, certain things. Uh, whereas spotlight really feels like where's the best place to put the camera. Where's the, what's the best lens to use? Uh, and I think for, for this, Yes, I would agree that there's there's a lot of con- there's a lot more confidence here, and I think it's something that would need to happen after a movie like Win Win, which has a larger cast than his movies before that, and obviously The Cobbler. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy! Uh, um, but 
also on top of the where the camera goes i think also the the editing plays a huge role definitely definitely in a movie like this yeah it it has to you know i talked about momentum and and things like that so a movie that doesn't have um you know i mean i'm sure you could uh, i'm not that great at spotting you know um uh, Aristotelian uh, story structure or mm-hmm. like the Joseph Campbell hero's journey. No. Um, I'm sure it does map out in a certain way, but it's getting facts across in roughly the the order that they happen. Yeah. And so to, to make, uh, to, to, to build the narrative um, cadence and momentum out of that takes uh, a, uh, a very short editing hand and a very solid script. Cause that's the thing. So much, needs to be needs to come across while also still creating characters that we care about. It would have been very easy as much as I, again, to go with all the presidents, but I think I, I think that is a better film in general, but maybe that's only because spotlight is so recent that I'm reluctant to think of it in those terms. But I do think like I only care so much about Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman, as much as I like them as actors mm-hmm. and I, they have a very dynamic on screen presence. Um, there's only so much I care about them because they're only so invested in this thing. Whereas spotlight, we need to not merely show the information. We also need to show the impact it's having on these characters. And then we get our cues from them. So it's more than just, here's a bunch of stuff that happened. It's also, a portrait of a community and how it responded to this. So like spotlight is just so it's working on so many levels. That, well, you know, that portrait of a, that community thing, um, reminds me of one of the, so then we can, we can move on after this. But, uh, one of the greatest things about the screenplay is how great is the sort of head fake of introducing Liev Schreiber as if he's going to be the villain or the antagonist, at least in yeah. the movie, simply because he's an outsider in yeah. more ways than one. He's not from Boston and he's not Catholic. Yeah. Um, that, that head fake before we uh, realize that the antagonist of the movie is exactly those things. It's, oh, yeah. it's the neighborhood, it's the community, it's the Catholic church. Um, that's brilliant. And there's a certain, there's a certain sad resignation. I think that, it took a guy from outside for us to like, we can't, we couldn't police ourselves. It took somebody from the outside to see this shame on us, you know? All right. Number six for you. Number six. Let's take a look. It's Alex Garland's ex machina. Oh, this is a good movie. (laughs) It is. I agree with you. (laughs) Um, in fact, I think there's only five movies I liked more, um, of the ones I saw. Is it better than Mad Max Fury Road? A little. Okay. <laughs> Just a little. Um, yeah. Uh, Ex Machina is, is a film that in some ways, the way people are talking about it, it's weird. In some ways, I think it's not as good uh-huh. as what people are saying, but in some ways, I think it vastly exceeds what they're saying. Um, as science fiction, I think it is very solid, very interesting. I don't think it is as hard uh, as hard of sci-fi as people think. Okay. Um, but I don't know enough about science to know <laughs> if something is hard sci-fi or not. Well, I get, yeah, I guess that's true. When I think of hard sci-fi, I think of 2001 and Solaris. Like that's basically it. Um, where there, there also tends to be almost a metaphysical quality huh. as well. Um, whereas this, it uses, it's like, yes, there's no action in it, admittedly. Uh, so, you mean there's no, like there's no violence? Yeah, there's I mean, no there like, is, 
Yeah, but there's no explosions or big chase sequences. Right. Where it's just like, hey, it's a guy robot, so it's science fiction, right? Right. Um, (laughs) It's not that. It's it is a helicopter. Yeah, but it's like a future helicopter. There's a. Oh, there's a dance sequence. That's true. Yes. You talked about Joy having one of the greatest sequences of the year. Yeah. Coming in a close second (laughs) is drunk Oscar (laughs) Isaac dancing uh, with his uh, servant, I guess. Uh, I guess. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. Uh, th- so I don't mean to speak ill of it. I mean, uh, from a science fiction standpoint, it's very interesting, but I actually, I think it's using the trappings of sci-fi to tell a different type of story. Um, I don't necessarily think, I don't think it's completely like Blade Runner where it's using the opportunity to explore what makes us human. I don't think it's doing that. Um, and, th- and I don't want it to, I don't need it to, that's fine. I think, and this is what I mean when I say I think it's it's exceeding what people are talking about. I think it is its story is inherently film noirish. Um, as certainly as far as the three lead characters, there is a main guy who's just kind of your everyman gets pulled into this situation where he still he kind of thinks he knows what's going on. Uh, he thinks he's been brought in for you know one reason, but it turns out to be another. Um, he and he's brought in by an eccentric billionaire who does things very much his own way. He controls things his own way. You know, he might as well, he could either be Noah cross or he could be, I forget the name of the character and the big sleep, but he could be in a wheelchair with a, like a blanket over his legs. He's, he's <laughs> that, he's that type of character. Um, but then we also have what turns out to be a femme fatale. You know, we don't know that. Uh, and mm-hmm. initially we see her as remarkably sympathetic and we want, we want to help her escape. That's the idea. And then it turns out, Oh, never mind. It's, uh, it's, she's Bridget O'Shaughnessy. She is, she's not, uh, she's not Evelyn Mulray. She's Bridget O'Shaughnessy. She's, uh, uh, Phyllis Dietrichson where she is a little bit treacherous, and I don't know, it's, there, there's a lot of element, uh, story and character elements that I find really fascinating. And I think it, it doesn't merely use these archetypes to be clever. I think it actually mm-hmm. explores all three characters to see what drives them and, and to see how they relate to each other. So I really enjoy it from a character standpoint. I'll get to technical things in a moment, but that is, that is what, what affected me the most. I, um, I'm going to have a different read on it that I don't know that you're going to like. I also like okay. the movie a lot, but um, first off, I went in with with kind of low expectations because I feel like there's a handful of these movies every year going going all the way back to uh, what's the uh, Equilibrium, the Matrix ripoff sure, with Christian sure. Bale. There's a handful of these movies every year that are like, let's pump a lot of money into the, not a lot of money, but a decent amount of money into the aesthetics. It'll be a yeah. slick science fiction movie that will have some, um, some, some hooks and will event will ultimately turn out to be kind of hollow in its metaphysical, as you said, ambitions. Right. That's kind of what I was expecting is another one of those, an equilibrium or like there's maybe a couple of years ago called the signal, not the horror movie from a couple of years, a few years okay. ago, signal, movie, the science fiction movie, a couple of, which is, it was a perfectly decent movie, but it just, uh, was not, um, it was outpaced by its own uh, visual uh, tactics. That's what I was expecting for Ex Machina. It's so not that. It's so about characters, as you're yeah. saying. But the 
the difference between uh, you and me or, the, or what I tend to read into it that I, I don't think that you would is that I see it as being a movie about, I guess, um, male privilege for a way in a way that it is that you've got Oscar Isaac as being the controlling male. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and he's, he, he's, you know, he is friendly. He's, he's friendly to the other dude, but he's, you know, not, we, we all known guys like this who are like, great dude great bros to their friends but tend to treat women like shit like I, I've, sure. I've known a number of guys like that um he's kind of that guy and so he's the recognizable stereotype of the villain then domino gleason comes along as the hero of the story but in a way that you know i think we come to realize might be a little more self-serving than he um than even he would would let on which is not necessarily that to say that um Spoilers for Ex Machina, not necessarily to say that he deserves his fate, but that it does his sort of the assumptions that he makes about Alicia Vikander's character because um, of her uh, femininity, because she's pretty, because she's small or, or whatever it is, because she's, you know, sweet in whatever way that he thinks the assumptions that he make makes end up coming back to 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 bite him. Mm hmm. Um, so that's, uh, I feel like male privilege isn't exactly the right kind of, uh, the, or I'd had, I'd have to talk more to talk about why, I, why I think male privilege applies, but it does have to do with the sort of the ways that me, the assumptions that men make about women. Um, uh, it, it, that's what I think it's about. Well, and actually that I feel like that's, that's a, an interesting way of looking at it. And one that I think actually, uh, bears out because, suddenly her being a robot i don't know if that's the word they use um they say robot right uh, that's it yeah yeah <laughs> there's that moment when donald gleason's like is she a, a robot <laughs> um and so her being whatever it is the cyber whatever um suddenly that that makes a lot of sense in what you're talking about because mm-hmm one guy doesn't care much about her cause he created her and he's created a lot before her. So who cares in the end he cares about her to a point, but he will dispose of her if he needs to. Right. The other guy comes to care for her quite a bit, but both of them see her as an object. Neither of them see right. her yeah. as a real person, which admittedly in the context of the film, she is not, <laughs> but she is still capable of feeling. She's still capable of all of all the things they they basically under they both underestimate her in a very specific way. Yep. One is I can treat her however I want. The other is I should tr- I love her and I should treat her with respect. And perhaps in doing so, not so much that she owes me something. It's just he thinks it's more of a relationship. Right. Uh, yeah. But it's one that because because he's a person, a full fledged person, and she's not. He feels like not that he necessarily has control, but th- that he is absolutely necessary. And I guess he is, but she's in control, and it turns out he didn't know that. Um, so, yeah, in both cases, she turns out to be by far the most powerful character of the three, mm-hmm. um, and neither of them thought that. So, right. uh, yeah, it's. I think that fits, and I think, and I definitely think if that idea fits into a film noir stand uh, uh, yeah. idea, all of this in a science fiction atmosphere and you talk about the slick art direction, all that. I think it is wonderful. I think they do a really good job with that as far as the, uh, art direction, music, lighting, color, it all works really well for me. 
probably primarily because that's not what it's only about. Yeah. Well, uh, and it's, it's, it's aesthetic. The design of the house is, um, I think more considered than what I was talking about before. Cause it is slick and modern instead of the art, but it's also kind of retro at the same time. You yeah. know what I mean? It also kind of feels 1970s. It feels like it could be the house in demon seed, <laughs> you know, um, feels like it probably should be actually given what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, especially, I mean, I talked about the dance floor scene, but the idea that he has like a disco yeah. dance floor and that, that room, that rec room in the basement has like a rock wall as yeah. a, you know, it's not, it's not all just like, uh, white, uh, geometric, you know, clean yeah. corners and, and doors that line up flush with the wall. Although that I do love that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, there is a, there's a personality to the, to the house that I, that I like. And, and all, per, all three performances are marvelous. I, I, Alicia yeah. Vikander is getting a lot of, a lot of press and that's, that's, perfectly fine but i also do think oscar isaac is doing really interesting stuff yeah where he does play him as kind of a bro but it's almost as though yeah i'm free to be a bro because i'm the smartest person you've ever met you know <laughs> right. there's there's that kind of arrogance and i do think there's he's also a little bit sympathetic i think there's a genuine loneliness there and a desire to connect with somebody but also he's so driven by his own agenda and his yeah. own goals that he is the he's the instrument of his own loneliness at this point. Um, I can't remember who it was writing for GQ said something about um, uh, see this movie because it's it might be the last chance to see Oscar Isaac play a villain now that he's like in Star Wars and he's uh, he does play the ultimate villain in X Men Apocalypse I should say oh okay yeah <laughs> I already forgot about that um, <laughs> you forgot it hasn't even come out yet yeah. you forgot. Uh, but anyway, the, this guy's argument was that once Star Wars makes him, like, catapults him into the next stratosphere, he's yeah. only going to play heroes or only going to be offered hero parts. Yeah, I, th- it's, uh, I do feel like, you know, he was given Apocalypse sort of before, yeah. before Star Wars. But, you know, if he yeah. knocks it out of the park with Apocalypse, then maybe he will get to play villains. I kind of think he's miscast as Apocalypse, <laughs> personally. Um, um, I don't have very many opinions on Apocalypse. Do you, I, I've, you you didn't really read X Men growing up, right? No, but I've read a lot of X Men since. Okay. Oh well. Um, all right, moving on to number six for you, for me. Um, this one I don't know if it made your list or not. Uh, it's Rick Alverson's Entertainment. It is like number sixteen. It was. Oh, it was just outside the yeah. honorable mentions. Um, this one was the one. <laughs> this is the one that unseated Cinderella first from mm. knocked Cinderella from one to two. So I had a real weird one, two punch earlier in the year. <laughs> um, like look, we're going to have a little double feature. David's <laughs> favorite movies of 2015. Uh, yeah. I, I, I was a big, big fan of the comedy. I think the comedy made my top 10 list um, it did. a couple years back. So I was not, um, surprised by how much I liked entertainment, but I was surprised by how, while very much seeming like it came from the same filmmaker as the comedy, uh, also feels like something all its own, um, in that it's so, I guess the word that I'm looking for, I'm not sure what the, it's, it's, it's a more subjective film, I think, oh, than, yeah. than the comedy, um, where the comedy is you saw the comedy as well? no i just okay. mean to say it's, it's a very subjective film compared to almost anything <laughs> yeah the comedy is looking at a certain 
type and it's an exaggerated version of a certain type, but it is, it is a sort of anthropological in that sense of looking at, um, this is a type of person that exists in America and often in Brooklyn, whereas entertainment, it does seem like, and I think this dawns on us as the movie goes on and on and on. I mean, it's, I think it's over two hours, right? It's, uh, I don't think so. No. Um, I think it might be like 150 or something okay, like that. Okay, so it's near it, the... Near it the moves 12. slowly, so it's yeah, understandable. It, it, um, it's, it, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's, not, it's not briskly paced, but as the movie goes on, I think it becomes more apparent how subjective it is. You know, things behave less and less like reality. It sort of feels like um, as each audience that the character... it's a, For those who don't know, it's about a stand-up comedian touring... Um, shitty uh, dive bar, you know, dive bars and other uh, venues and locales across Kern County. Um, and as each sort of audience becomes more and more hostile mm-hmm. in his um, life off stage, um, becomes more either lonely or more horrific or sad when his daughter repeatedly won't return his fo- answer the phone or return his phone calls. Yeah. It becomes more apparent that we're inside this person's head. And it, it sort of feels like it's like, um, when, uh, Renton overdoses in train spotting mm. and he sinks into the floor. Yeah. It's like a two hour version of very slowly pulling further and further away from reality and into the sort of whole of, of this guy's, uh, mind or his, or his soul. Well, and one thing that I find interesting is that, the character think of the first gig we see him at uh-huh. and the last one. Yeah. And think of how different they are. Yeah. One is a prison and the other is a swanky Hollywood party, Beverly yeah. Hills party. <laughs> right. Theoretically yeah. he has, he has moved up. Right. But look at how, look at the reception and yeah. look at his, his mindset. Like it clearly is. It doesn't matter if your if your career is moving upward in the world of entertainment or maybe anywhere, uh, it doesn't move. It doesn't matter if you're moving upward. How you're feeling and how you're connecting with other people is ultimately what is going to matter. It doesn't. You can you can be incredibly successful and just break down crying <laughs> at, yeah. at, at a key moment. Um, um, yeah, but it's not just that. Like the thing that makes the movie. I think brings maybe a step up from in, in quality from what you're talking about. Cause it is that, but he doesn't, as he, um, uh, as he falls down this, uh, this hole, he doesn't just cry. He becomes a less and less pleasant person. He becomes oh, yeah. a bigger asshole. Oh yeah. Um, and more angry and his anger becomes less focused and, um, so cruel. I mean that, the scene with Amy Simons, uh, she's great, but it's like, yeah. it's hard to watch. Like this is the hero of our movie and he's saying repulsive things. Uh, and then there's the much funnier thing where he just <laughs> makes fart noises <laughs> to uh, me that it's, it's funnier to a point and yeah. then it keeps going on and it's just like, and I didn't, I, I didn't get frustrated with the film. I got frustrated the way an audience would and just trying to figure out like, man, how much must this guy hate every, this character yeah. hate everything, including, and maybe especially himself. Yeah. If this is what, if he's willing to degrade himself to this extent. Yeah. Yeah. It's not to mention wonderful supporting performances 
all around. Yeah, I mentioned Amy Simons. You've yeah. got John C. Riley. You've got Michael Sarah. You've got um, I think Lotta Verbeek is her name, the mm-hmm. uh, chromotherapist. Yeah, um, which is a wonderful little sequence yeah. that I w- I need to watch the movie again to try and parse exactly what is going on there, <laughs> why it's in there. But uh, and Michael Sarah does I think some of the best work of his career, if not the best work of his career in what two and a half minutes. Yeah, it's harrowing watching yeah what he does there yeah but i also is either about to break down and cry or is about to pull out a knife and stab the guy in the face like you you can't tell um and then i I also think ty sheridan yeah who when what i've seen him in i didn't think he had this in him uh and his it's so interesting that like I like that we got to see as much of him as we did. That his, you know, uh, Greg uh, Turkington's character is not the only odd performer uh, <laughs> that this other guy, yeah. you know, the scene where he's, uh, I'm going to assume, fake masturbating <laughs> on stage and just like the Ty Sheridan's complete lack of uh, self consciousness as he's doing, as a perf- he himself as yeah. a performer when he's doing that is very admirable uh-huh. um and very funny and it's just such a uh and you know what i'll say this that movie could only have taken place in kern county <laughs> it just seems just seems right um that's if you haven't seen it and you're listening and you're thinking well i gotta see this you're right you do but it is a movie that is like like a stand-up comedian who is angrily making fart noises for the entirety yeah. of his set. It is a movie that is out to upset you. It yes. is its aim is to be difficult to watch. So just know that going in. And let me suggest this like, pardon me, like a comedian that will be, that will go on stage and just make fart noises the whole time. I don't think the film knows you're there. <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't think it cares about you <laughs> at all. Um, uh, so, okay. Next for me yeah, I'm is talking myself into like, I should bump this back high <laughs> on my list. It's so, it's so amazing. Next for me is number five, right? Okay. Yeah. It is Lenny Abramson's room. Okay. Are we talking about it? Yes. Okay. Sorry, it did not make my, uh, my list. Okay. Um, yeah, it's, it's just below inside out and just above call me lucky. That's where room is on my list of movies for the year. So inside out is not in your top 10. No. For a while that was high up there. Yep. Interesting. Yep. Oh, that surprises me. Um, okay. You don't know what's coming up. I don't. I really don't. <laughs> uh, so, okay. So, yeah, uh, Room is a film that I did not expect. I, I expected I would like it to a point. I thought it was going to be, okay, it's going to be melodramatic, it's going to be super sad, and I'm going to be happy I watched it, and then I'll go go on. I'll be very sad for the rest of the night, and then I'll move on with my life. Um Yes, it is all of that, uh, <laughs> but it is also so much more. It's also very transcendent, and I think the key from a storytelling standpoint is that it is the kid's story mm-hmm. as well as, and maybe even primarily, uh, more than the mother's story. Yeah. And so we see things, we'll, some, we'll see new things with a sense of wonder and excitement and fear and confusion, and it just, it, the film allows us to look at the world as well as relationships with fresh eyes, not merely the eyes of a child, but the eyes of a child who's only had a, uh, uh, exposure to one person directly and another person indirectly. Um, and so it's such a unique idea, uh, for a book and for a movie that I just, 
it allows so many allows so much so many different types of exploration uh of character of theme and and i feel like it it pays it off really well um i did not expect i didn't expect it to be as visually dynamic um Mm -hmm. i did i did an episode of more than one lesson about it a couple weeks ago and um one thing that we explore is that the film in many ways seems kind of from a, from a cinematography and editing standpoint seems pretty straightforward. But when you take the time to think about it, you come to realize that when they're shooting in room, Mm -hmm. it looks pretty spacious. Yeah. You know, you, it almost looks like there are definite, that there are, even though we, we know consciously that, that it is all in one space, that here is the kitchen. Here is the bathroom. Here is the bedroom. Right. Because the way it is shot, they are shot separately so that it looks like, you know, if this is the, pl- the space that you're living in, then yes, it might feel confined, but, and this is the key, if it's from, if this is a film from the mom's perspective, that place is tiny. Mm-hmm. If this is from the kid's perspective and he has only had, and he's only had exposure to this room, it seems plenty big. Everything's fine. And then when you cut, that's when they're in there. And then he go, then they, they escape and they see the yeah. rest of the world. And then when they come back, they shoot it all in one fr- in, in one oh, shot. Yeah, yeah. And so in that moment, that's when, even though, you know, it's very small in that moment, you realize this thing was tiny. What a monster Sean Bridgers turns out to be. Um, turns out we know he is. Yeah. Um, but then <laughs> that big surprise. Yeah. But, uh, and then moments like the, like the escape, uh, of, of the kid, the film, I guess just in general, it just defies my expectations because I, and it defies what I want. Cause I had a very clear idea of what I wanted that escape to be oh, right. emotionally. Yeah. And it isn't to the point of even, you know, you want it to be the kid jumps out, screams, people come running and there's a cop nearby thankfully <laughs> and then this guy gets uh just a beat guy walk around <laughs> yes, twirling twirling his his <laughs> obviously with an irish accent yeah. um and so that's what you want it to be and then you want old nick to be grabbed by a, a big mob of people who then just beat the hell out of him or something <laughs> like that it's not that at all his it's head on, a, on a stick like tommy lee jones at the end of natural one exactly Killers. exactly <laughs> um but it's it's an overcast day. The kid, he, he's so mystified just at the notion of the sky yeah. that he just lays there for a while. And I just want to be like, kid, kid, stop. No, go. Like So there's, there's a tension there. But even the film even does not allow the fact that he is a boy to register to the people around him. They're confused by the whole situation. And why wouldn't they be? You're not, as you're walking down the street, you're not faced with this very often. And it doesn't even give us the satisfaction that they instinctively know he's a boy just because we do. They look at his hair. They assume he's a little girl. Mm -hmm. And so that is probably how it would happen. The film speaks that level of truth. It knows what we want to happen and says, I'm sorry, I can't give that to you. I will give you what it actually is. And, and then when the characters get back to, back to the civilized world, it still just does not give us 
what we want or what we think would happen that the man, that the, the mother character would be so grateful to be out of that situation that she's just happy all the time. Right. Oh wait, no. Yeah. Now she actually has, cause she's not allowed to, to mourn what she lost when she's in the middle of it. But now that she's out of it, now she has the opportunity to look back on the years that were stolen from her and just feel so furious and sad and mournful and feel and still feel totally isolated from the world around her. There's so much about room that works and it, it could have so it it could have been a lifetime movie, but they subvert that constantly. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Yes. I I don't know. I I bristle a little bit at uh, lifetime movie being used dismissively because I will use it as a shorthand. You know what I mean when I say, I know what you mean. I just feel, I feel bad for lifetime because they've made, They've changed some of their identity, and they've made some, okay. they've made some good movies. Okay, but you know what um, I mean when I say that. Okay, I'll go. I'll say uh, Hallmark Hall of Fame. Okay, <laughs> yeah, um, uh, yeah. I, I feel like I should add more here, but um, yeah, it's pretty. Uh, it's pretty intense. This movie, yeah, and yet still so, and yet it's not totally defined by intensity because again, we have that kid who's still full of life and joyful, and there are moments of tremendous pardon me, yeah. tremendous tenderness. Yeah, I think, but, but, um, part of what the, part of the intensity is that all of these emotions, all the emotions movie, because it's a little kid, a little kid and a little kid who has such a little, uh, experience of the world. Um, uh, all of the emotional moments are so, uh, forceful and upfront that even, even tenderness, yeah. you know, or, or sadness or anything is so immediate. Yeah. Um, that uh yeah i i remember um um i'm not an actor but i, I have um, friends who have taken acting classes and uh the idea of being of having access to your emotions at all times like keeping them where you can always at yeah. any different motion that you can reach out and grab it right away um to uh and now i forget the boy's name the, the Jacob char- Tremblay, no, the character, Jack. Oh well, yeah, to, uh, to Jack, that's just what life is because everything's yeah. so new. Everything's right in front of him all the time, uh, and so it gives the movie an a, an immediate, a constant immediacy. Yeah. All right. Um, what was that? Number five for yep. you. Um, number five for me. Finally, we can talk about it. Paolo Sorrentino's Youth. Oh, all right. Um, uh, this one, unlike ex machina or other things that I talked about, uh, or that you just talked about with room, like being surprised. I was not surprised by how much I loved <laughs> youth because I, um, really enjoy the films of Paolo Sorrentino. Um, uh, I need to go back and watch Il Devo. Um, cause I'm not sure I entirely got it at the time, but, uh, the great beauty was my, I think what ended up number one on my list, yep. uh, two years ago. Um, youth, Falling four spots, Paul Sorrentino falling four, four spots to number five. Shape up, um, but it is uh, still a. Uh, I'm getting um, uh, now. This is the third movie that I've talked about uh, with both Embrace of the Serpent and Cinderella, um, movies that can be um, transportive because. Youth is, in theory, a movie that takes place in the same world that you and I live in, mm-hmm. right? Um, but it I wish. <laughs> uh, the world doesn't behave like that, and I don't think yeah. Paul, Paulo Sorrentino sees any reason why it should. You know, I've, yeah. I've seen detractors of this movie talk about the dialogue being unrealistic, and it's like, well, yeah, this isn't how people talk. 
but this nothing about this is this is a movie where it finds an excuse for a character to walk around dressed as Hitler. It has a levitating monk. It has, um, you know, um, Jane Fonda in just shocking white makeup. Like it's not, this movie does not take place in our reality. It's a heightened operatic version of our reality where small things become huge, uh, because, because that's the movie that we're watching. Um, but also because they're huge to the person experiencing them at that moment. Um, Let me run this by you. And okay. this might be appropriately, appropriately since we're talking about youth. Maybe this is a, a heightened statement. Okay. The film is less concerned with fact or being factual as being true. I feel like yeah, yeah. what the characters are feeling, may, it might not be realistic, but it's true. Yeah. And honest. That's And that, I mean, uh, to me, that's... Um, we're talking a lot of, uh, on this episode about things that I tend to respond to in movies. I like dialectical movies, uh, and I like that. I like mm-hmm. that sense of um, what's important is the, is the inner honesty and truth to what we're trying to get across, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it doesn't have to show fidelity to nature. It's sort of, you know, when people go to art museums and say, you know, my kid could paint that or whatever, you know, like that's yeah. not... Not when people, you know, that not realistic. It's like those tend to be the paintings that I respond to more because yeah. they might not actually look exactly like anything, but they feel true. Yeah, um, and they feel powerful. Uh, and so, I guess what I'm saying is, youth is abstract art. It's a sure. Mark Rothko painting of a, of a movie, um, uh, and it's it's also. Uh, I feel like I just talked about this last week. I can't remember when I, when I talked about this recently, but, uh, Oh yeah. Uh, recent movie journal. We were talking about, um, man with the movie camera Mm -hmm. of all things. Um, and how that movie has a sense of humor and joy and fun to it. Um, anything that's going to be this massive and ponderous, uh, (laughs) as youth would do well to also be fun and funny. And that's, I think one of the things that I've responded to repeatedly in Paul Sorrentino's films uh, is that, yes, he is making huge, grand statements and things that are art with a capital A, but he's also having fun and encouraging you to have fun yeah. watching it. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a lot of, there, there's a lot of uh, um, beauty to the images, but there's also a certain... Um, surreal quality to them that mm-hmm. um that that's there and not just the images but uh the sound design as well um it's there to make you smile it's 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 whimsy and art yeah absolutely it's it's one of the most beautiful movies i saw last year um after saying all that we've just said, part of me is like, oh, why can't I bump that? Maybe I should bump that back into my top 10, but I, <laughs> it's too late now. It's already, this is already on tape. Not really. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, it's just a, a gorgeous film and it's, it's meditative. It's ethereal while still, cr- while still creating specificity of character, um, and relationships and much more of an ensemble than I thought it was going to be. And I just, yeah, uh, it's a film that I really loved and was, I expected to like it. Um, but then it wound up being a different type of thing than what I thought it was going to be, mm-hmm. which 
which often disappoints me. But in this case, uh, I found it so much more invigorating than what I thought it was going to be. And that's a, that's a good thing. So, uh, you ready to move on? Yeah. Number four for you. Number four for me was number one for a long time. Oh, and that is Paul King's Paddington. Okay. I haven't seen it. Oh, David, I got to see it. Paddington. So much fun. It's just, there are a lot of, there are a lot of things thematically that I really respond to. Um, you know, the idea of, of a surrogate family and, and finding who you are, uh, in when you're an outsider and and that sort of thing. So there's a lot of stuff I like there, but, uh, on top of everything else, it's just, there's something invigorating to me about a film that could have been, I mean, I guess I said this kind of about room. It could have been so easy and complacent and lazy. It's called Paddington already people. You, you probably have people 65% of the way there just because you are now telling a story about a beloved character. Uh All you got to do is try to get the character right. And you're good for the most part. It's like, you're not, what are you hoping for an Oscar? Come on. (laughs) Um, but the, 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 the writers, the director, the actors, they are not content to just be, to just coast on the name and goodwill and, uh, a, a very forgiving child audience. Uh, they put in the effort constantly they they look at every nook and cranny and say, "Is this is are we being as creative as we can be? Are we slacking? Are we getting lazy?" And every frame is just packed with love, like love of what they are doing, and love of the story they are telling, and the world they're creating. Um, and so there are moments that are just that are are silly. It's in many ways. When I saw the, a trailer for it, it looked horrible. It looked like <laughs> it looked like Beethoven, uh, mm-hmm. where they're like, ah, they bring in this animal. He's, calling, he's making a mess. <laughs> but when you actually see these sequences, they're first off they're like Rube Goldbergian, uh-huh. um, but but so charming. And the and the the character of Paddington, uh, voiced wonderfully by Ben Wishaw, um, at his most humbly charming. Yeah. Um, we're so on his side. That's the thing. Beethoven, he's a big dopey dog and we like him. He doesn't say things and he doesn't, and he means well, but he means well cause he's a dog. Um, I recognize that the other notable St. Bernard Cujo did not mean so well. Right. So I guess it could go another way, but, but in the midst of these sequences where Paddington is causing things to happen the whole time, he's just like, Oh, ah, no, I don't want like he knows the ramifications of what's happening. He doesn't want it to happen. So first off, not only are this are the things put together in a fun way, mm-hmm. but also they have real emotional stakes. And and the whole time, even though we're watching the disaster happen and we're being entertained by it, the whole time is like, no, people are totally gonna misinterpret this. <laughs> um but then <coughs> now does it does it is this updated? Like does Paddington like Busy like butt dialed the prime minister on FaceTime on an iPad. Is that kind of that sort of thing happening? Well, Paddington doesn't have back pockets, David. But uh, no, that does not happen. <laughs> okay, that's good. Uh, it, it does have. Uh, it it, remi- it reminds me. Is it calling Uber at any point? <laughs> several times. <laughs> 
And then there's actually like a five minute conversation between him and Hugh Bonneville about the Lyft versus Uber. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so it reminds me a lot of Babe in oh. that Babe was kind of timeless. It didn't take place at a, at a, in a specific, at a specific place in time. And, and it reminds me of that in that, yes, it clearly takes place in modern day, but in the same way that uh, Batman, the animated series took place in modern day, uh-huh. where it just takes elements from different time periods and right. puts them all together so that it doesn't really matter when it takes place. The, the, the characters that we're dealing with, the situations we're dealing with could happen at any time. Um, and it's just, the film is just so full of joy, full of life, full of creativity. I smiled all the way through it. Uh, I don't know anybody that does not like the movie. Um, I don't think, I don't think it's, I don't think it's possible to dislike the movie, which I recognize when you say that, when I say that kind of thing, I usually mean that it's, that it's pandering and it's just manipulating (laughs) you so that you will have to like it. It's not that it's just that it's putting in the effort and, but while also seeming effortless. And I think at the core of that is just, a tremendous joy in what they are doing. And it just, and it's in every corner of the frame in every frame of the film. Number four for me, we don't have to spend too long on it because I feel like we've talked about it so many times in the podcast, Okay, but it's Todd Haynes Carroll. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm not sure what we can say about it that we ha- that it won't be us repeating ourselves because it really yeah. has come up uh, quite a bit. You can check out the BPs and hear us talk about it. Uh, yeah. Maybe that's what I'm like. Yeah. We just recorded that. Uh, yeah. The last time I was here. So, um, I do feel like we talked about it to death, but, uh, yeah, you can check out the, the VPs and hear us talk about it. Um, but it's a, uh, it's a, it's a lovely film that is, um, no, no one element of the film seems like it would be able to exist without all the other elements. It seems that fully and wholly realized. That is a really great way of putting it. Um, what with all the Seinfeld I've been watching lately, uh, I was reminded of, I'm reminded by, you're saying that, I'm reminded of this thing that, uh, I was watching an interview with Jason Alexander and then another one with Julie Louis-Dreyfus in which they were talking about shooting the last episode of Seinfeld. And before every recording, the four of them, the four main cast members would get together and just kind of be silly and all that the very last one they got together and all of them were like on the verge of tears, even though and they got to go out and be a very specific type type of silly and totally mm-hmm. unsentimental, but they're feeling sentimental in that moment. And Jerry Seinfeld said something that then caused all of them to just burst out crying, which he just said, like from now on, they will not think of one of us without thinking of all of us. And there's nobody I would rather share that with, which is a wonderful sentiment. Yeah. And it's completely true. Yeah. Um, and while it's weird to be saying that, that idea is something that I've, I, I heard, I heard it a couple of days ago and I tried to think of other things in life, artistic or otherwise, that that is true of. And you saying that about Carol is correct. When I think of Carol, I think of the complete product. It's easy to talk about Kate Blanchett, but I can't talk about her without Rooney Mara. Mm-hmm. I can't talk about the music without talking about the art direction, yeah. which I, and then I, then I can't talk about that without the costumes, the cinematography. The cinematography. Yeah. It is a complete product. Yeah. It, 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 it arrived fully formed. It's a 
Calling card for the auteur theory. Oh, yes, that's about right. <laughs> Number three for you. Number three is Danny Boyle's Steve Jobs. Oh, wow. Yeah. I like this movie, too. I didn't realize you liked it quite this much. Well, it was number one for a long time. Okay. And then you know what? Two movies bumped it out. Okay. Um, <laughs> Thanks for keeping up <laughs> with the math uh, so I don't have to. So, okay. Yeah, uh, this is a movie that I wasn't... A common theme, by the way, in what we've been saying. Right. Low expectations. <laughs> which maybe is... I don't know. Maybe that doesn't speak well of us, but... Uh, yeah, uh, I didn't care about this thing. It, everything about it seemed like it was just going to be a cut-rate uh, social network, which is odd because, you know, Steve Jobs is better known than Mark Zuckerberg and is a is a much larger figure uh, in pop culture and, you know, just culture in general uh, than Mark Zuckerberg. But I, as much as I like Danny Boyle, I think that... Uh, I think that David Fincher is a, maybe not necessarily a better director, but a more distinct director. That's not right either. I think maybe for this type of material where we're dealing with methodical people, Mm -hmm. I I guess I felt that, that, uh, David Fincher would be a better person to capture that. And, and, and the fact that both are scripts written by Aaron Sorkin. And I thought that, Mm, the grounded methodical direction of David Fincher would keep Sorkin's flowery dialogue from going stratospheric. Uh, but then also his dialogue would, would elevate, um, Fincher's direction. So the two not necessarily cancel each other out, but bring out the best in each other. Well, David Fincher is a very different director than Danny Boyle. Mm-hmm. And so Danny Boyle, who is kind of a flowery director in a, in his own way, yeah. him doing, uh, Aaron, Aaron Sorkin. Good God. It's, I just thought like, this seems like it, there's a high, uh, uh, see, self-indulgence, uh, potential here. It's funny that you say that. Cause I, and I see what you're saying now that you put it that way, but I thought of it because they're, while I agree that they can both be indulgent, I feel like they are indulgent in such different directions. Right. That, you know, that, that, um, Aaron Sorkin being so about, um, structure and dialogue and the words on the page. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, I, I thought of him as a weird fit that he would be, um, uh, I was afraid that Aaron Sorkin would be almost like, uh, uh, an, an anchor or an albatross hmm. for, for Danny Boyle. They are, def- they are, they are, I don't like the word flowery, but it's the only one I can think of at the moment. We've been recording for a while. Um, <laughs> it's, they are flowery, again, for lack of a better term, in, di- in different ways. Um, there is definitely more of a kinetic quality to, um, to uh, Danny Boyle. Um, but either way, I don't think of either of them as particularly grounded. The fact that Aaron Sorkin's writing, his prosaic writing, could be seen as a possible anchor for Danny Boyle mm-hmm. should let you know what we're dealing with here as far as what the tone could have been. And it's worth noting, here's what I find so interesting. The thing that I come back over and over again there's wonderful performances uh a lot of the dialogue is great in in steve jobs but what i come back to over and over again is the structure i think the structure is brilliant and it is worth noting that in the midst of a very kinetic uh flight of fancy director like danny boyle and a very uh flowery um 
heightened writer like Aaron Sorkin, it's interesting that Sorkin seemed to instinctively, or maybe he decided this is a thing he needed to do, felt the need to limit himself in the structure. Within that, he could do a lot of things, but when you look at what that three-act structure is compared to what what it could have been... But I don't even see it as as limiting. I see it as almost like... uh... Um, for Danny Boyle, Aaron Sorkin closed the door, but open a window. Sure. Like absolutely. he gets to, he gets to do things that are usually, I think when things are described, when a movie is described as being stage bound, that's, um, meant as an insult. Mm-hmm. Um, and Aaron Sorkin can be a very stage bound writer, sure. especially with this structure of it essentially being three, one act plays. Mm-hmm. Um, it has the, the, um, the, the potential for that sort of uh, dryness, but Danny Boyle does things that are stage bound in a different way in, in which he does things um, that would not be out of place in avant-garde theater. You know, there's a part where um, Steve Jobs is talking to Kate Winslet's character, um, giving a speech and all of a sudden all these images get are being projected on the wall behind him. Yeah. Like, this is clearly not happening in the reality of the film, but this sort of thing would not at all be out of place yeah. in a stage production. Um, and, yeah. and so it, I think it, it gave Danny Boyle, um, license to pursue his flights of fancy in a different direction. Exactly. It, it frees him up by, and, and again, maybe limit isn't the right word by, by, f- by forcing, you know, it's the life of Steve Jobs. You could do so much with it, but by forcing it into this very, for lack of a better term, narrow structure, now you can do all kinds of things as the director, and it won't seem over the top. It won't seem overly self-indulgent. It will seem, everything will still seem very focused. And when you think about it, the structure itself is, is, unrealistic you know the fact that we just keep coming you know that there's like 10 years in between these things yeah. and we keep coming back to the same people over and over even people that shouldn't be there and no well now you're getting as to why this movie isn't in my top 15 some of those do feel especially with his daughter do feel too forced and that's for the thing is because to me and this goes back to this thing i was talking about with with the biopic if somebody finds a new way to make a biopic, I appreciate it tremendously. And to me, this is not meant to be reality. This is the essence of Steve Jobs' life condensed into these three things. And it makes no sense for John Scully to show up in Act 3. Or even Act 2, for that matter. Um, it makes no sense for his daughter to show up the way that it happens. It makes no sense that he... he, he keeps having to deal with the same people, often in the same order. Uh, right before every unveiling it's not meant to make sense it's not meant it's not meant to be reality it's meant to be a condensing of reality to its to its essence uh and, i like when to, it, i do like when the screenplay comments on that when uh there's a joke of uh feels like before every launch everyone decides to go to a bar and get drunk and then come tell me what they really think <laughs> yeah they still find a way to you know uh turn it into into a joke and so it's just a that structure it reminds me in a in a way of of the limey where some of the best sequences of the limey 
are the character think when it becomes clear that this whole thing is him thinking back on his uh, Mm -hmm. Los Angeles adventure. It's not the way to put it, but um, there are there are sequences where he'll be having a conversation with somebody. The conversation is linear. Yeah, but it takes place over several over several locations in one evening. Yeah. And it becomes clear that, oh, well, this is a function of memory. So he has condensed a three hour conversation that took place in four different places. He's condensed that conversation down to its essence and he doesn't remember what was said where. So now it's just a combination of these were where we met. This is who I was talking to. And this is basically what we said. And that's what Steve Jobs is. And I think it's amazing. And I think it is, it was invigorating. And once I realized what it was doing, I, the, the thing that popped into my brain was like, this is, this is something special. This is a movie that, that is very special. And I like that. I don't even, I don't think of it in the same way as I do social network. I think social network is a better film, but I don't think of it at the same way. Mm-hmm. We're dealing with computer, uh, visionaries written uh, screenplays written by the same guy who, as pointed out by our friend Kevin Porter, tends to repeat himself, and yet no, way, and yet in no way do I connect these two movies. They are so different in in and great in different ways. And I'm of all the people I know, I like Steve Jobs more than anybody else. And it might be because my expectations were very specific, and it shattered them in every way. Um, and then, and that's just not and that's not even talking about certain things like the acting. I think the acting is absolutely wonderful. My personal favorite of the bunch is Jeff Daniels, who I think is doing some really special things and the way the film is edited, um, specifically in that second act where you have Jeff Daniels and, and Michael Fassbender arguing in real time. And then it keeps flashing back to this, uh, to this board meeting. Really. It's a very, very special film. I can't recommend it highly enough. All right. Um, my number three uh, is in in no way are there any limitations observed in this movie. It's uh, Spike Lee's Chirac, okay, which is uh, a movie that swings through the fences from the very beginning um, with you know a choreographed dance sequence and people speaking in rhyme and uh, just bright uh, you know what's sort of what's what's a uh, why can't I think of the word? Not monochromatic, but dual chromatic. Sure. Um, color schemes, um, bichromatic. I don't know what the word is. Um, uh, Too chromatic. Yeah. <laughs> all of all all of these things, just leaping off the screen from the very beginning, and then, um, in no way making any apologies for itself or asking or, or winking or asking you to take with a grain of salt, the fact that this is a sort of heightened, um, you know, um, social issue comedy thing. Um, it's, it's, it's not, it, it doesn't have any, the movie doesn't seem to have any to its credit. The movie doesn't seem to be aware that it's weird. Mm -hmm. It's so earnest that, I think within the, by the end of the first scene, you kind of realize, all right, I got to be on board with this or I'm now, or I'm not going to get on board with this ever. And so I think there are some people who maybe don't like it because of, because they decide that they aren't on board with it. And that's fine. The movie, uh, makes that sort of, uh, uh, offer, like I said, right up front. But if you are on board with it, it's, um, becomes quite a journey. And I think Spike Lee's, um, 
earnestness allows him to cram a lot of different stuff into this movie um, because it is sort of a musical and a comedy and a uh, movie about sex. And it's also um, in a movie that's very upfront about its issues and has impassioned speeches uh, and also just um, the Angela Bassett doing among the best performances, best work of her career. Uh, and the same could probably be said of John Cusack, um, who stars in the centerpiece scene of the movie for a lot of people, maybe mm-hmm. for me, which is um, at the, he is the preacher at the funeral for a, a child who was struck and killed by a stray bullet. Um, and he just gives, I guess it's a eulogy, but it's more, I mean, I think of it more as a homily. Um, uh, you would, <laughs> that's a Catholic thing. Right? I think so. Yeah. Um, but it's, I mean, the movie just, in some ways you could say the movie just the plot at least just stops for fi- like 15 straight minutes of him giving this, this eulogy or homily or whatever, but the movie doesn't stop in terms of momentum because his performance carries it through. Uh, and, and it might actually even pick up speed, um, through the 15 minutes of John Cusack talking or yelling, uh, more often than not. Uh, and the fact that it fits, that it fits that, that sort of scene, that, that, that odd choice in, and makes it work is a testament to how in control of his talents Spike Lee is. I mean, um, Spike Lee in a way, uh, this is a comparison that I've just thought of now. Okay. Um, how exciting because back when I saw Chirac, um, David Bowie was still alive. So I wouldn't have thought, uh, hmm. thought of this, but Spike Lee is kind of like David Bowie in the sense that, as long as they've been around, uh, I mean, Spike Lee obviously has not been around as long as David Bowie was, but their stuff always feels honest and current. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like David Bowie, and this is a point that um, uh, Tom Sharpling made on the best show about David Bowie is that he never seemed as old as he was because he never cashed in on his legacy or his nostalgia. Like he never did That's the, true. he never did the tour of playing like space odyssey, space, yeah. Odyssey, space oddity and stuff like that. Like he was always about his new stuff. And I feel like Spike Lee is the same way. Whereas we see a lot of directors who have been established for uh, 20 plus years yeah. uh, become boring, kind of lose it. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. a, a, a lot of, this happens across art, your favorite comedians and your favorite musicians. Um, the longer they are famous, the, the less, um, relevant they end up becoming. Um, and Spike Lee has never been that he is uh, always working to, to do something he hasn't done before. Um, and is always, uh, following his muse, um, wherever it, it takes him and the fact that he can be an incredibly sophisticated and sensitive and innovative and experimental filmmaker while also being, uh, an impassioned political and social advocate and making all those things work together. Uh, yeah, uh, Spike Lee is just a guy that I will, I will always be excited for what he's doing next. Hmm. Um, 
I missed his Michael Jackson documentary at uh, at Sundance or his second Michael Jackson documentary. That's one thing that people don't talk about enough. That Spike Lee is, in addition to the all these great movies that he makes, he is. I I would say Spike Lee is one of the greatest currently working documentarians. Uh, if you've seen Four Little Girls, I've if seen you've Four seen, Little Girls. Uh, when the Levees Broke, if you saw uh, Bad Twenty Five, um, I feel like there's more that I mean. He also makes like. Um, concert type stand-up mm-hmm. uh, things like original Kings comedy. And I think he did, uh, he did someone else's that I saw. Um, this is a guy who never stops working and is, yeah. um, ne- doesn't seem to treat one kind of filmmaking over uh, as being more important than any other kind of filmmaking. Uh, yeah, he's, uh, I think, I think maybe like David Bowie, whenever we are in a Spike lee world, it's going to hit us. Uh, just how prolific and talented this guy was, and, I, and uh, hopefully we can appreciate him now. I am, I am hope. I'm waiting for uh, the moment when he breaks through again. Because, like Chirac, aside, of, uh, a few people thought that it was a, a vital film to see, but for the most part, it was kind of ignored. I feel like the last movie of his to be the one that everyone said you've got to. Everyone said you've got to see this. Um, was probably twenty fifth hour. Yeah, that's that's fourteen years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, Inside Man did very well, but that's one that was just like eh, that's a competently made film. Moving on, um, mm-hmm. but like I don't know when 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 I think of you know Do the Right Thing or Malcolm X or these other films that everyone everyone was just a buzz about. I feel like the last one of those was probably twenty fifth hour, and it'd be nice to see to if he was given the opportunity to make something like that again and, and just kind of get back. Not when I say back on track, I don't blame him for that. I blame just, you know, the system or, or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, I, I'm in, I'm interested in that and I'll be honest, I'm stalling. Cause you can't think of your number two or you can't think of what to say about it. I don't know which one is first or second. <laughs> well, you don't have any time to oh, stop. I, I wrote it down. I mean, I wrote it down in a, in a particular order, knowing that, like, I I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. All right. I'm going to say one, two, three, and then point at you, and you say whichever one's on the tip of your tongue at that time. Fuck, okay? fuck, fuck. One, two, three. Bone Tomahawk. Bone Tomahawk is number two. It came that close to number one, huh? Yeah. All right. I haven't seen it. <sighs> Did I make the right decision? It's too late now. It's too late now. It's on tape. <laughs> it's on reel to reel, as Jimmy Pardo would say. Um, all right. So, yeah, Bone Tomahawk, which is one of two movies. And this is, yeah, this, I guess this explains one and two. One of two movies this year that I would descri- that I saw that I would describe as perfect. Um, directed by S. Craig Zoller. And I just saw it last week. And I have texted and emailed, I'm going to say, a dozen people that they need to see this film. <laughs> um, it, it, I, I recorded with uh, my friend Reed uh, this week, an episode of More Than One Lesson, and uh, we wound up going late because for an hour before, see, before starting to record, we talked about Bone Tomahawk. Uh, it is a film that will not leave your mind ever, even if you want it to. Um, it just, it is so sure footed. It is 
a marvelous Western. It's a marvelous horror film. It's a marvelous character study. It is shot beautifully. It feels like a lived in world that still at the same time feels heightened in the story that it is telling. It is Cormac McCarthy esque. I feel like this guy would be, this would be a great guy to direct uh, Blood Meridian if somebody ever wanted to make it because this film is also horrendously gory mm-hmm. at times. It never, but it never feels excessive. It feels like it is earned. Um, it is unsettling and yet very moving. It is, uh, a lot of actors are at the absolute peak of their performance. Matthew Fox does, I think maybe the best work I've ever seen. Better than Elvis Cross? I didn't see that one. (laughs) I know you don't cross them. That's one thing I know from the poster. Um, Kurt Russell delivering two great Western performances, but this one, there's something, um, who was, who are we talking about? What, what character were we talking about with this last year or the year before? You know what? I think it might've been Mark Ruffalo in Foxcatcher. Okay. That they're just, we naturally assume that characters that are inherently decent can't be interesting. Uh-huh. Um, and then you see him in Foxcatcher and you think like, never mind, I'm wrong. This character is so fascinating to me. Kurt Russell's character in Bone Tomahawk is one of the most decent characters you'll ever meet. But he never seems naive. He never seems uh, like, you know, Pollyanna-ish or anything like Mm -hmm. that. Uh, He doesn't even seem overly optimistic. He just has has his morals, he has values, and he knows what what needs to be done, and he will do it. And it is a marvelous performance. And then Richard Jenkins... uh, in a number of people uh, submitted him in the BPs for supporting uh-huh. actor. He was very close to being nominated. I wish that I had seen the film in time because I think my vote <laughs> might have put him in. Um, he's, he's doing tremendous work. He and Kurt Russell have such great chemistry as the, the, the sheriff and, and his deputy. Um, and just, and, and, uh, uh, Patrick Wilson is also uh, wonderful in the film. It just great cast. It's a great cast, and um, and just all of these things working together to create this this astonishing film from nowhere, from just out of nowhere. I don't. It's, I mean, it it was in theaters for like two minutes, um, <laughs> and from what I saw in in watching special features. Um, Kurt Russell found this, saw this script a couple years, a few years ago, held on to it and said, "Like this is something I want to be a part of, and I can see why." Not merely in general, but also as an actor, it's like this is a part I want to play, and that seems to be the case with all of these actors. Mm-hmm. Um, in an interview, uh, Richard Jenkins, in, in like a promotional interview, so it's probably been at least months mm-hmm. since he's played his character. And in the interview, he's quoting lines mm-hmm. because he's like, "Why you never get to say lines like this. It's a wonderful screenplay. It is, it is a, I might be overselling it, but I am fairly confident that I, that you can't. You cannot oversell this film. David, I'm telling you, it's perfect. It's Bone Tomahawk. It's number two. Okay. 
My number two, I'm, <clears throat> here's the pattern I'm establishing. It, okay. This is this will be very clear in, in my number two and number one. But I've found that uh, even even before that, with, with Chirac, with youth, with entertainment, with listening to Marlin, with, with, even with the big short, um, I do not put a premium on narrative. I, uh, I don't necessarily care what the story of a movie is. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if it's, uh, somehow more pure cinema, if it is, um, shot and edited and presented and decorated in a way that makes me feel something and moves things along, I don't need a story to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think you'll see that in these last two, even though number two here does have a story. It's who shall shens the assassin. Mm-hmm. That is my number two film of 2015. Um, which is about something. It's about a. There's a woman who is trained from a young age to be an assassin, and then listeners, she, I wish you could see the the eye roll and having to it, even describe it that way. Yeah, it does. I mean, it has a story. There's a woman trained as an assassin from as an assassin from a young age is sent uh, to kill the head of this city state, um, and then she finds out uh, that this is where she's from, and this man is actually her relative slash was meant to be her betrothed. Uh, so they did things in ancient times. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, I guess you could follow from that, that she is conflicted about whether or not to kill him. But that's, that's, that's even steering the movie too much into a, um, character based, uh, uh, realm. That's not really what the story is the, or, or what the point is. It's, most of the movie is just enchantingly beautiful. It's, um, I, I don't like, I feel like I need a better word than slow because it came up with entertainment and it's coming with this one. Meditative. Cause maybe that's what I'm, what I'm saying. Yeah. It's, it's pace is not very quick, Yeah, but neither of those movies feels slow to me. Um, yeah. Uh, and so yeah, I hesitate because I feel like, and I said this on Twitter recently that, that movies only feel slow to me if, uh, if they're bad, if I'm not enjoying them, that's the only time a movie feels, you know, me and Earl and the dying girl felt like a very slow movie to me. Uh, but I, I don't know what the word is for something that is taking its time. Deliberate. Deliberate is good. Yeah. Um, but even then that, that, um, that suggests it's just forward momentum, which I think me. deliberate deliberate might apply to entertainment. I don't think it applies to the assassin because the assassin moves, um, sort of, uh, like, a um, this is the firefly fan coming out of me like a leaf on the wind. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, it, it just sort of lilts from scene to scene, even when it's a very dark scene and there's murders happening or, 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 or she's, you know, confronting the fact that she was, essentially brainwashed um by this strange woman wearing a mask um who's never quite explained uh it's 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 not (laughs) it does seem to have themes um that and we talked about this with with scott when we counted down his top 10 um that it does seem to have a theme Around, that that dances around the idea of uh, a purpose. Like what is, what is a person's purpose and how um, what we're born into or raised as or told is our purpose is not 
necessarily going to gel with how we feel and who we become on our own as we um, get older and become our own people. So if that that's something you can you can latch on to, um, but I kind of think you don't need to. I think each scene and the uh, soft sort of transitions in between scenes are so beautiful and hypnotic on their own that um, if you don't agree or if you don't care about what I just said, I still think this is a movie worth watching because uh, it's a, a work of pure beauty. Hmm. All right. I think we're on to Tyler's number one. That's right. And it's, I don't think it's going to surprise you. Do you know what it is? I feel like I did, but not, no, I okay. don't remember. Once again, to go back to the, the theme of my top 10, apparently, uh, surprisingly, this this is a standard Oscar type movie, and I just approached it that way. There's like, all right, it's gonna movie gonna be a movie that's perfectly fine. Oh, I know I'll, it I'll is. enjoy it, and then I'll forget it and move on. Yeah, and it is John Crowley's Brooklyn. Yeah, um, I don't I don't blame. This is the kind of movie, um, which I'll, I'll talk about. I'll talk about something when we get to my number one about sometimes. And I'm sorry, I'm hijacking your that's thing fine. here, but. Um, Often I will, I, 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 with certain movies that make me feel a certain way, uh, I'll go very strongly with my fr- first impulse. You mm. know, I'll be like, that movie made me feel so strongly this way. Now I'm putting this high on my list. And Brooklyn, I really liked at first, but it's, um, and I, I, I thought it was lovely and wonderful at first, but it's a movie that, it, it, conversely, it has not left me. And uh, I think about yeah. it, I think about, Bro- I mean, it's been months since I've seen it now. And I think about it, pretty often yeah that's that's how it wound up my number one um is that when i first saw i was like that was a wow that was a really good movie and it showed and i put it on my list of like number 13 Mm -hmm. a few days later it's like huh you know who's hanging out with me is uh this character over here (laughs) um and actually now that i think about it this character over here too this whole place i'll bump it up this is at least a top 10 movie and then I, and so then it was like number seven, three, one, because it's not going anhow And what, how is that pot? The only other movie that that happened with this year was bone Tomahawk. As mm-hmm. you can see, like these movies just stayed with me. And maybe the reason I'm so going similar, <laughs> isn't that crazy? Like, you know what? I think if if ever I could feel good about myself, it's the fact that I have the capacity to love Brooklyn and bone Tomahawk. <laughs> I guess they both start with B. Right. Um, but, uh, but yeah. And so it, nothing about it. It just seemed like a perfectly pleasant film going in one that uh, you said lo- lovely. It's like, Oh, it'll be a lovely film. Um, and I'll enjoy it. Might get something out of it. Probably some good performances in there. Saoirse Ronan seems to be getting a lot of press. And then it turns out to be this very, when I say strange, there's nothing inherently strange about it. There's no experimentation or anything like that. It's very straightforward. Mm -hmm. But what's strange to me about it is that it's one of those things where I'm reminded of something that my mom used to say, both about the movies I would watch and the scripts I would write, which is, why can't you write about nice things? (laughs) 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 Which is such a mom thing Uh to say, but you know what? That's Brooklyn. Yeah. It is about a lot of people that mean well with the exception of one person. Yes. 
They all mean well. And yet, conflict. And the conflict is life. Uh-huh. It's, it's moving on, literally, because she moves from one country to another, emotionally, and just there are choices you make, and then there are things that are just thrust upon you, like the loss of a loved one, or sometimes it's, well, I ha- it's like, I, I guess I have a choice in whether or not I move, but honestly, there's not much choice. Um, and then you just kind of have to go along with it, and it's the, per- perpetually figuring out what the new normal is, and then realizing that it could change tomorrow, whether you want it to or not, and then just finding those areas of stability and support where you can. And, and also recognizing that the past is not our enemy. It's not a thing that we need to get over. It is a thing that we will carry with us and it helped define who we are for good or ill. Um, it, but it is not, it's not where we are now. And there is such tremendous temptation to return to the past because in its own way, it is, even if it's bad, it is some, it is what we're used to. It is safe. Um, and, and we know what to, there's a, it's weird in comedians and cars getting coffee. There's a wonderful line and it's such a simple sentiment and it's, it's Joel Hodgson mm-hmm. and Jerry and Joel are in a fifties diner and Jerry says like, it's another fifties diners. Like, what are we, why are we always looking back? Why are we all, you know, why are, these things are in the past? Mm-hmm. Why are we always in the past? And Joel Hodgson says like, because when you look back, you know what you're going to say you know what you're supposed to say about the past. Mm -hmm. You don't know what you're supposed to say about the future. It's such a, the sentiment of it is so simple, which is there's just, it's, it's, it's one of the things that bothers me about the phrase. And I, you used it jokingly earlier, the idea of, of don't, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. It's like, Mm -hmm. you don't know what history is going to say. You're trying to have, you're trying to have the benefit of hindsight only looking forward. You don't get that. There is no 2024 sight, you know, and just it, it bothers me tremendously uh, when people do that because you want to have the safety of looking backwards as you look forward. And, and that's the, and cause that's the thing there is, there is 2020 hindsight. It's all about what could have happened, what should have happened. And Brooklyn says that, yeah, there, it, there is this compelling idea to go back to where you came from and say that that's who you are and that's who you'll always be. And there's nothing wrong with that place. It's just not you anymore. And that is a sad thing, but it's also, it can also be remarkably freeing when you acknowledge that. So obviously thematically, this is a thing that means a lot to me, but if the film and if, but I'll say this, if the film were made in a more innocuous way, then the theme probably wouldn't be enough to bump it beyond bone tomahawk. Yeah. Uh, but the, it's gorgeous to look at. It's beautifully realized as far as the cinematography, the costuming, yeah. the art direction, and then the, the performances are, are spot on all the way through. Um, yeah, that, you know, um, something you just said uh, made me think of what I said about the assassin in terms of, uh, the purpose you're, told is your purpose and the purpose you find. Mm-hmm. And that does like she has, she is presented with two options, which is, and both of them are appealing. And one yeah. of them is what she thought she wanted when she was young. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and might still want. And one is this new thing that she's discovering she wants um, in America. And that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's uh, the source of, source of conflict. But yeah, the performances, Saoirse Ronan, I mean, I, we already knew she was good, but I feel like uh, this is kind of an eye-opening performance. And uh, that guy, Emery Cohen, I like him more in every movie he's in. Yeah, that's, and I think I said this when I first saw it is that because he's done such a good job of being a real douche, uh, which in is not a phrase on the pines. Yeah. yeah. And, and even in, uh, the gambler where yeah. the character is more of a sympathetic douche in the he's gambler, more sympathetic, yeah. but he's still not a guy I would like to hang out yeah. with. <laughs> and then when you see him, I just naturally, I'm like, don't trust him, Saoirse. Like <laughs> he wants something. I don't like it. Yeah. And it turns out he's just a, he's a decent guy. Again, all these people, I, that maybe that's what I love so much about it is that, most of the time in life, I think we're dealing with decent people. We try to be decent, family, friends, coworkers, whatever. We're all trying to be decent, and yet somehow we're all still sad, furious, right. uh, confused, frustrated, depressed, because you know it's it it is rare for for a good number of people to experience the kind of drama that movies provide us with. Um, there's plenty of drama to be, uh, I mentioned American Splendor earlier. One of the things that I love about it is just a very, a very basic sentiment, which is, you know, ordinary life, you know, everyday life can have a, a can be a pretty dramatic as well. And I think Brooklyn is that all over. Okay. Um, have You're you number pe- one. Have you pieced together what it is? Um, all right. Have I seen it? Uh, yes, you have. Um, Hang on. <laughs> no, I, I just want to go silence. ahead. I just want to go ahead and uh, spring it on you because this is a very late edition. Okay, but we have talked about it recently. Um, you've seen it more times than I have. It is Rodney Asher's The Nightmare. Whoa, number one with a bullet for me. Uh, Did you email uh, Rodney and say, "Hey, just a heads up, you made my favorite movie <laughs> last year"? Uh, no, I haven't reached. Out. I, well, I, I've never like I've only talked to Rodney who's on the show. You're the guy who talks oh, to okay. Rodney. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, I do feel like I need that caveat that he is a he, multiple a repeat guest friend yeah. of the show. Um, but that's not why I put it at number one. I put it because it was the most powerful and perhaps in a way, the most cathartic emotional experience that I had watching a movie this year. Fascinating. Uh, boy, oh it, boy. Um, it's increasingly, it's what I want for movies, which is, um, to, feel something very strongly and very deeply and feel like I maybe not intellectually learned something, although I guess you kind of do from the nightmare. Um, but more that I have, I have grown or changed, uh, emotionally or maybe even spiritually, which is a word that I say use very cautiously yeah. as a non-believer. It's a word that I only say when I think it, fits even if i am always not entirely sure what i mean by it mm-hmm. but there is something spiritual i think about about the nightmare about the 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 fact that it is confronting the unknown within ourselves at least that's, that's how i interpret it the yeah. movie is open to interpretation because there are uh, there is at least one of the people interviewed for those who don't know the movie is about uh it's a documentary i guess technically um about sleep paralysis um, and it uh, consists of interviews and reenactments of people who um, who suffer from this incredibly terrifying thing where they have these um, vivid, vivid um, nightmares. But again, that's also me projecting because at least one of these 
women, the women, the one woman who really does believe this is an, ex- an external thing. This, these are demons. Um, and she was an atheist who is now a Christian because yeah. she found uh, power in the name of Jesus uh, when confronting this. But I think of this as a spiritual <laughs> thing because I, you know, at, most people who do, are not uh, 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 religious or are not believers uh, like I am tend to, you know, chalk things up to to science. And maybe even if there is science that can explain sleep paralysis, it doesn't explain away um, the effect that it has on a person or why these things would manifest in that way. And it it's... Uh, even if there is science to explain it, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, that only is going to help you so much. There is, if there is a main guy, a main character in the nightmare, uh-huh. he's the guy that, that has the, that we go to the most, I think the most often. And he's the one who has the last word in the film. Oh, and is that the, the British guy? No. Uh, okay. it's the guy who talks, the one who said, who introduces the idea of now this hurts. Oh yeah. And, yeah. That guy. Yeah. And even he says at one point, like once it starts to take on a physical quality, uh, he says, he's like, yeah, I stopped being an atheist immediately. Now that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that he becomes a Christian or anything, but like there does seem to be where t- we talk to eight people, two of them go from non-belief to some kind of belief yeah. as a function of this. There does seem to be, whether you believe or not. There is a, a, a almost transcendental ethereal element to this where it's just like, I can't explain where there's experience trumps any kind of science or objective thought for the people when they're mm-hmm. in it, which I th- find so fascinating and also terrifying. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. I mean, I, I don't know if I've gotten it across before uh, already, but it is. I feel like I can say this without qualification. I know the movie's only a few months old, but I'm pretty sure it's the scariest movie I've ever seen in my life. Um, I don't think I've ever been so scared. I know I have never, uh, and I think I said this when we did the movie journal, but I know it's the first time that I've ever considered maybe I need to stop this movie and watch it again when the lights are, wow. when the sun's up. Because I I like to watch scary movies late at night because I like, I like when movies scare me. I, I don't know. Uh, that's what, that's what scary movies are supposed to do. So I figured why not give them the best possible chance to yeah. do it. And so I watched them in my living room alone in the middle of the night. Uh, it's a pretty regular thing for me. Um, uh, this is the first time that I was, it was and literally only like 10 or 15 minutes in. That's one of the best things about this movie and uh, the kind of movie that isn't, um, that doesn't um, carry the safety net of a narrative is it could just jump right in yeah. and uh like about 10 or 15 minutes in i was like i'm so scared right now <laughs> i might need to pause this but i i powered through boy oh boy <laughs> you didn't see it you didn't see it coming i thought you because I, when i said i had forgotten i had forgotten it. yeah that. uh yeah, I'm glad I was able to surprise you. I always, uh, I, I like to, I like, I do like when these are surprises, uh, yeah. to you, but I, you know, I didn't, I didn't put it at number one to surprise you. I put it at number one because I, I really can't remember the last time I had a, uh, an experience watching a movie that made me feel anything as strongly as I felt, uh, <laughs> watching and in the immediate aftermath of having watched the but, nightmare. But was it only fear that you felt? No. Or was it, uh, you, did you feel again, I, 
I understand why you use the word spiritual. There, there is something you feel like you're tapping into something deeper than mere science. You could call it like the collective unconscious or something mm-hmm. like that. Just something that we all somehow share. That's how people who've never met can have the same dream, you know, right. or whatever you want to call yeah. it. Um, it's fascinating. Yeah. And I, it's not just that it had these things uh, outside of fear, but that it did have, because, you know, I talked about, I feel like I'm repeating myself, but that's okay. Um, from our movie journal, that's fine. Um, I already mentioned that it doesn't have the, I mentioned the safety net that a narrative provides. Um, and I do think that's part of why it's so scary. Um, but Rodney Escher is also enough of a student of horror films to know, to end with some hope. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's something, even though these people, this is, these people being interviewed are not, you know, they, it's not, they weren't afflicted in the past. They continue to be, to have sleep paralysis all the time. Um, and one guy says that he's, he's come to terms with the idea that one of these days he's just not going to wake up from it. That's good. That it's going to kill him. And despite all that, there is some sense of, of hope or peace, uh, in the, in, in the end. And I think I, I found that, um, uh, I guess I found that comforting, which is not, it's not necessarily the movie is saying it's all going to be okay. It's the movies saying you need to make peace with the idea that it might not all be okay. It might not all be okay, which is something that I think very much speaks to my, my worldview, mm-hmm. which is something that I think superficially might seem pessimistic, but I actually find a lot of solace in uh, accepting the, terrible horrible things that i can't change um uh it's a lot easier uh and and more peaceful that way and um so the movie made me think of things that i had never thought of before and then also spoke to me in in the language of things that i had thought of before and again it also scared the shit out of me (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's uh it's it's a it's a such a powerful such a powerful film I would also, uh, not, I, I feel bad doing this, but I'm very proud of the more than one lesson episode I did about it. So okay. if anybody is interested, you can go find that as uh, one of the movies we do- talked about, uh, last Halloween times. But so what's interesting to me is that if, if our, t- if we had only each seen 15 movies uh-huh. this year, your favorite movie is my least favorite movie. Oh, <laughs> right. Of the 15. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's still yeah honorable mention for you. Number one with a bullet uh, for me. How exciting! And uh, yeah, I wish uh, I could go home and watch it again right now, but it's the middle of the night and I got to get up in the morning. Now I've seen it three times, uh-huh. and while it definitely is creepy every time, do, do you think? Because it did scare me the first time, definitely. Um, do you think it is going to be as scary every time you see it? I, d- I don't know if it will be as scary. I know that I continue to occasionally, while laying in bed, think of the movie and feel scared again. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, maybe yeah, may- maybe it will. That's interesting. But, uh, I, lo- yeah, I look forward to the chance to see it again. The next time you see it again, I mean, you'll, par- you'll talk about it in the movie journal, but report back and let us know if you are as frightened, maybe more. As yeah. the first time you saw it. Yeah, I, I, I really want to watch it with 
my wife, but she won't even let me tell her anything about it. Yeah. She's like, I will, she's like, I know what it's about any more than that. And I will have nightmares. So yeah. don't tell me. So I, yeah, I, uh, I will be watching it alone. Absolutely. When I watch it again. All right. Um, this is fun. Yeah. And short. <laughs> not short at all yeah. uh, you can find us at battleshipretention.com that's where you can find reviews of most of the movies I think we talked about today um, you can email us at david at battleshipretention.com or tyler at battleshipretention.com you can follow me david on twitter at davy pretension you can follow tyler on twitter at tyler pretension uh, any, what's going on at worth playing for more than one lesson Real quick. well we talked about the season premiere of survivor over at worth playing for but you can find that at battleshipretention.com uh, we have been talking about Oscar no- nominated movies over at More Than One Lesson. So we've talked about Room, Spotlight, Bridge of Spies, and then most recently we talked about.